Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. Welcome to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. And we are here with TK Coleman. Oh, yeah. What it is. Alabama's here. Hi, everybody. Of course, we have Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown. Oh, we have... Amy Unknown here as well. <laughs> nurse Amy, what other podcast do you know that has a nurse on site just in case something happens to Ryan? Right, right. It's mainly for me, yeah. It's mainly for liability. I mean, yeah, I, I could have some health uh, event or create a health event for someone else. <laughs> An emergency health event. <laughs> well, after I came in sick that one time, Josh hired a right. nurse just to be here. <laughs> <laughs> See if I can actually come to work. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about Ways to let go, or maybe we could say even the only way to let go, ultimately. We've got some questions we're going to answer. If you're joining us via the live stream every Tuesday at 10 a.m., we do a live stream for anyone who supports the video version of the podcast on Patreon. We're uh, live streaming this as well. You can drop your questions and comments in the chat. Before we get into our callers, Malabama, let's tune into that live stream. You got a question for us? We do. We have a question. We have a question from Alex. One summer while at the beach, I spent several minutes suspended on a waveless sea. Couldn't hear nor see or feel anything. I just floated. A friend described it as a transcendental meditation. Have you guys experienced something similar? Yeah, I mean, TM is usually a little bit different from that. TM, you've done TM before, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not trained in it, which you have, I mean, you don't have to, but, but, but it's wise to be trained in TM. So it's usually a mantra that you're repeating over and over again. And everyone gets their own mantra. Yeah. And it Generally, you want a mantra that means nothing, doesn't have a literal meaning to you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. it, it's the reason that, that chanters often use OM at other meditations, right? Yeah. Is because it doesn't have a specific meaning. Like, if you were to chant the word sandwich or something, like, you know... <laughs> How did you know my mantra? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a private thing. <laughs> it's like salami You've been sandwich, reading my diary, salami. haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I think what you're talking about here is a flow state. Now, when you're feeling weightless, one way that people get there, and these are all over the place now, is through floating. You're mm. doing the sensory deprivation tanks, right? TK, have you ever experienced a sensory deprivation tank? Oh, man, yes. And I love it. I first uh, heard about it. This was before I I moved to Charleston. I was living in LA. There was a a float clinic in Torrance. And once I went there once, I started going like every couple of weeks. I just got so hooked on the experience. It's the most amazing thing. I love it. And so for those of you who are listening to this, but you don't know what it is, basically you go in a tank with salt water, salinated water, and it's the same temperature as your skin, roughly 94 degrees, give mm-hmm. or take. And so it feels like you're suspended in space. Yeah, because mm-hmm. the salination helps you be a little bit more buoyant. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you're floating in it and also... And then you pull that tank over you so you're in darkness. It, yeah, absolute yeah. darkness. Yeah. And you even put earplugs in so you can't hear anything. And so sensory deprivation in the sense that you have no sight, no touch. Your five senses are, for the most part, turned off or all the way down. And 
Here's what I realized the very first time I did it. I was in Spokane, Washington, which was the closest when we lived in Missoula, Montana. I was driving through there, stopped by, did, uh, did the sensory deprivation. And I realized how turned up my mind was. Yeah. The volume of my thoughts are often dampened by all of my other senses. And when you turn all the other senses down, it feels like you've turned the volume on your mind all the way up. Mm-hmm. But of course, you haven't. It's just you've turned everything else down. And it's just like if you were whistling Mozart at a Metallica concert, you're not going to hear it. But if you turn mm. down Metallica and you turn down everyone else in the room, all of a sudden there's just a person there whistling Mozart. And my mind was doing that. And it was so, <clears throat> so loud. And it took, uh, the first session I did was about an hour. And it took about 50 minutes until that volume started coming down. But it almost felt like it was maddening at first. Have you had a similar experience, Ryan? Oh, man. Uh, I've only, yeah, I've done it only once. And um, I felt like for the first 45 minutes, I wasn't doing it correctly because of how loud my brain was. I, I like how you compare your thoughts to Mozart. Um, mine are more like... Um, Philip Glass. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get quiet for like a minute and then it gets really chaotic. Um, but like the last 15 minutes is really when I got into that tranquil state. Almost like when I left the float take, I'm like, oh, I have to do this more often so I can like actually have the experience. Like I, I feel I feel like you have to practice. Yeah. Like, do you feel like the more you did the floats, TK, like the the more you were able to kind of drop into that? that calming space? Absolutely. The first time I did it, it was uncomfortable for me. Like, you know, like I felt like my neck was hurting. I was kind of distracted. I'm, I'm, I'm expecting something mystical. I'm like, man, what's going on? Like this thing, what they talked about on the podcast. <laughs> I was just all in my head. It wasn't until I did it maybe like three times that I really began to ease into it. Yeah. And, and that noise that you talk about, it's funny because the the waveless sea in some ways is like a a great metaphor for the soul itself, right? When you go to the to the the sea and it's beating with waves, you look at the water, you can't penetrate the surface. All you see is what's on top. But then when the waves are calm and the wind is still, you can look down into that water and you can see straight through and you what do you see? You see that it's teeming with life. Same with the soul, you know, like those beating waves, our thoughts, all the noise, all the worries and anxieties. But when you can calm the mind, you can quiet the soul, you can look straight to the bottom of your own soul and be like, holy smokes, it's teeming with life in here, you know? And it takes a little while though. Like you said, the volume turns up at first, but then you start to organize that noise and it becomes music. Well, patrons, drop your questions and comments in the chat. We'll get to more of those throughout this episode. Let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. This is definitely the best way to feature your question on the show, and you can let us know that you're a private podcast subscriber so we can prioritize your message. We got a question from Michaela. Hi, this is Michaela from Wisconsin. I currently live with my parents until I am financially able to move out on my own. While I've been living with them, I've been saving up things for a future house that I think I may want or need. Uh, due to this, I now have about 50 clutter coffins down in their basement, and it's definitely too much. But every time I go through the stuff, 
I like it and I want to keep it. How do you decide what to get rid of if you like everything that you have? Oh, our society is definitely suffering mm-hmm. from this illness called stuffitis. And I heard this term first from Dave Ramsey when he was in our last documentary, Less Is Now, on Netflix. And he was talking about how it creeps up. It becomes a chronic illness in a way. When you think about stuff, we all know what stuff is. It could be material possessions, but all the stuff in our heads. We were talking about that earlier on the private podcast, how our thoughts get turned way up. There's a lot of stuff in our head, which is often a symptom of the stuff in our lives. We can talk about the stuff in our relationship. I'm just going through some stuff in my career, right? Uh, You know, this thing that's been going on at church or with my community center, whatever it is, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Mm. So we know what stuff is. We're talking here about material stuff, but it can be other stuff as well. And then itis, which just means to be inflamed, right? So when you hear about like colitis, that means your colon is inflamed, right? Mm. And, And so... We are inflamed by stuff. And so we're talking to someone like Michaela here. She said, there's a lot of stuff here that I need or, or maybe that I, I want. And Ryan and I, a few years ago, we came up with this rule. We call it the no junk rule to differentiate between three things. It's the stuff that you need, the stuff that you want, and the stuff that you kind of like. Uh. And there's a difference here. I would actually look <clears throat> at those <throat> categorically as three substantially different things. So you can download the Minimalist Rulebook. You can read the No Junk Rule in there. It's free. You can find our website, theminimalists.com, right there at the top. You can just download it. You can go to our free resources page. But what I'll tell you is, with respect to the No Junk Rule, everything you own fits in one of three piles. It's either essential, it's non-essential but adds value, or it's junk. Another way to look at that is you need it, you want it because it adds value to your life, Or, yeah, I kind of like that, or I think I'm supposed to like that, but maybe it's actually getting in the way, and that's the junk. And if you can differentiate between all those clutter coffins, as she calls them in her base, we did a whole episode called Clutter Coffins. We'll put a link to that episode in the show notes, because that's what happens. We bury our stuff very neatly in our basements Mm. and attics. We put it in these clutter coffins, and all of a sudden, we have to deal with it Or worse, we just put it off till tomorrow because I think I like some of these things. I know I don't actually need them. If you needed them, they wouldn't be buried in your basement. Right. If they added value to your life, they wouldn't be buried in your basement. What we're really talking about is some hypothetical future value you may get from those things. And that is true, but you'll never get the value as long as they're tucked away, hidden from use. That's mm. right. Like if you only like it when you look at it, you probably should give it away so you don't have to look at it. But but no, seriously, if you only like something when you look at it, that's probably the strongest argument you can find that you don't love it. Imagine if we treated people like that. I mean, hey, Ryan, I never think about you. I never wonder how you're doing. I never feel curious about you. I'm never motivated to initiate contact with you. Oh, but whenever you happen to show up and you're right there, yeah, I like you. That's not love, man. Mm. That's not the foundation of a great friendship, right? We wouldn't really tolerate that in our personal relationship. So why tolerate it with things? I mean, that's really the definition of shopping, looking at a bunch of stuff that you feel compelled to buy when you're looking at it. But then as soon as you turn your head and look the other way, it's like, oh, I don't really need that. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult, man. Like we hang on to these things because we keep them for some non-existent 
hypothetical future, or maybe it is an existent hypothetical future in Michaela's case. But, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves, I mean, these are important, man. Like mm. every single story that whether it's our narrative of our life, the narrative of how we got here, where we're going, uh, these stories are so important. So the story that we tell ourselves when we hold on to things a lot of the times is, oh, yeah, one day yeah. I'm going to use that. One day I, I'm going to I'm going to put that in a I'm going to put that in a bin because one day that's going to look really, really good mm. in this home that I'm going to get in the future. And there's nothing wrong with that story. The problem is, is when that story isn't serving us. And that's what I would ask anyone in a situation where they're holding on to things for some non-existent hypothetical future is how is that story serving you? If it's making you leap for joy and it's motivating you to go out and, 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 and get it and buy that house, whatever it may be, that all that stuff's going to go into one day, then great, hold on to your stuff. But if that story, if it's holding you back, if it's making you anxious, well, then you might want to you might want to rewrite that story a little bit. Oh, man. One day, Itis. Mm. Maybe that's what you just tapped into mm. as the real foundation of stuff, Itis. All of the stuff we hang on to that we don't need, whether it's a toxic relationship, a job that we should have quit a long time ago. It's based on this narrative of one day, Itis. One day, I'm going to get my life together. One day, I'm going to truly love myself. One day, I'm going to do something that really brings me joy. One day, I'm going to live life like I really want to live it. But until that day comes, I'll hang on to this just-in-case relationship, this just-in-case job, this just-in-case item. And you never build a passionate, adventurous life off a of just-in-case, you know? The first mm. day of every year, I tweet the same tweet. And it's simply this, one day or day one, you decide. And I think that's applicable to any day. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we don't need to wait till New Year's to have the resolution in our life with respect to our stuff. And I think, Michaela, if you're listening to this right now, it's day one. You don't have to wait for one day. Today is day one, the first day of letting go. Because yes, you may be suffering from stuff-itis, as I think we all are. If the average American household has 300,000 items in it, we're all inflamed with unnecessary material items, things that get in the way. And so as Ryan said a moment ago, if the things are getting in the way, that is a surefire sign that you want to let go. The reason you're calling in is because you know you want to let go of some of it. You know some of it's in the way. And so it's figuring out what is essential. None of those things are essential. We know that because they're tucked away in these clutter coffins. Mm -hmm. So what are the things that are non-essential but add value to your life? And you can identify those by identifying the third category. What is the junk? What are the things that are getting in the way? What is the clutter? Because the definition of clutter for us as the minimalists is anything that gets in the way of living a meaningful life. And so something that doesn't get in the way today, something that serves you today may get in the way tomorrow or a year from now. And so we're constantly questioning. We're asking, does this add value to my life? And if it doesn't, man, that's a sign to let it go. One last thing, a rule that we put up on YouTube recently. So we've got the minimalist rule book, 16 rules for living with less. And we're constantly making up new rules as we go, as we learn new things. At one of our Sunday symposium events here in Los Angeles, I talked about, so someone came up and they're asking a question about all these things they wanted to move with, but they don't even know some of the stuff they own. 
And I think that's where Michaela is right now. She goes down into those clutter coffins before opening them. She looks at them and says, I don't really know what's in here. Or when she opens up, she may even say, hey, I didn't know I own this thing. But now that I know it, I feel compelled to hold on to it. But here's the rule. It's called the don't know rule or didn't know rule. If I didn't know that I owned it five minutes ago, and I know that I own it now, if I didn't know that I owned it, I can let it go. And don't fight to keep anything that you're not fighting to use. Ooh. Tweet that podcast, Sean. We got another question here from David. Hey, my name's David from Calgary, Alberta. How can you become a minimalist when so many things force you and make you rely on technology? Some school courses require you to have a computer or tablet. If you live in a condo or apartment, dressed up as people into the building requires you to have a cell phone. And what if technology doesn't really bring you value? It's just a convenience thing. How do you get around that to be a minimalist? Convenience is a big excuse for doing a lot of the things that we do. I'm not against convenience. I drove here in a car today. I didn't run or walk or take a buggy, right? And I appreciate that convenience. But at some point, it can also become a detriment. The way that I like to think about it is you lose traction when you remove all friction. We want some friction in our lives because it gives us the traction to move forward. Otherwise, you remove all traction when you have an ice rink and you're careening from one edge to the other. And that's what we're doing now. We're just careening metaphorically through TikTok and Instagram and Twitter and uh, Facebook and YouTube. And there's nothing inherently wrong with these platforms if they're adding value to your life, just like there's nothing wrong, David, with a laptop or a cell phone until they've removed all the friction for you. And then you're just sliding all around. Mm. It becomes digital clutter. And so I think the heart of what David is talking about here is dealing with digital clutter. And of course, the best way to deal with a lot of it is to avoid bringing it in in the first place. And then, of course, if it's already there and it's in the way, well, then we want to assess what is actually in the way. Because it's not that the smartphone itself Mm. is in the way. Mm -hmm. It's how we use the phone that is in the way. And it may take getting rid of it. It may just be too Mm. tempting. In the story, we tell ourselves, I have to have this because I have to buzz people into my building. Oh, was there ever a time when you didn't have to buzz people into your building? Just the rocks at your window. (laughs) Hey, come down, let me in. (laughs) There are plenty of ways. I mean, I've lived in plenty of buildings where a cell phone was required in Mm. order to buzz you in. And I just didn't hook up to that system because I didn't want anyone bothering me on my cell phone anyway. And so I just didn't buy into that system. And by the way, if you sign up for a university and they say you have to have a laptop and you say no, what are they going to say? Screw you. We're not going to take your money. Have you ever considered the assumptions that other people are making about your life. And you know what? There's always room to experiment with how flexible or negotiable these stories are. One of my versions of this story is when I travel, I got to have a book bag. I can't get on my plane empty handed, right? I, I need a book. I've, I've got other things I needed. And I made up my mind this last trip that I just got back from, no matter what, I'm not bringing a book bag. This seemed like a safe opportunity to just experiment. Can I get away without bringing a book bag? And I didn't. And 
my trip felt so light and so amazing in all kinds of ways I couldn't even describe. And I didn't really miss out on much. Whatever I would have needed my book bag for, I I could use my phone. So I left the laptop at home. Uh, I left all the stuff that I thought I have to carry around. And there was even one point in Chicago, I had like an hour and a half layover. And because I was just by myself, I left the airport, went to a chapel, meditated for like 45 minutes, then came back, got into the airport, went through security really fast and was like, whoa, I should travel without my book bag more often. So there's always room to play around with those stories. But here's one thing I would say to you in response to this question. I would invite you to reframe the language of necessity that you invoked when describing your situation. This class forces me to use a computer. I'm forced to use my phone for this and that. And I would say, instead of looking at it as something that you're being forced to do, look at it as an agreement you have made based on a priority that you have. And you can choose to hang on to that priority or you can change that priority and have a different one. But if you're taking a class, you're choosing to take that class because you believe it will benefit you. And if getting the most out of that class involves using a computer, that's not something you're forced to do. That's something that benefits you. And if you really don't want that benefit, then I would look for a different class or look for a way of taking it that doesn't have that requirement. But as long as you're looking at this stuff as as something you're forced to do, you're never going to get out of it and it's going to make you feel like a victim rather than someone that's in control of your life. Yeah. Josh, what you were talking about earlier made me think of uh, like one of my favorite tweets was uh, <clears throat> a tool is as useful as its user. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what what happens with technology. Like sometimes we might feel forced into using some technology. Um, but when it starts to be something to our detriment, usually it's because we're using it in a way that is uh, causing anxiety, causing mm-hmm. depression, um, that's making us not feel good. So, uh, you know, if, if someone is forced into using technology and uh, they find themselves using it in a way, not being able to like put any of that friction in the way yeah. of using that technology. I mean, they can totally look at alternatives. There, there are, there are all, there's always an alternative. Yeah. So, you know, uh, makes me think of uh, your intercom system where, yeah, they wanted you to hook up to the cell phone. And you know what Josh did? He went and got a landline and like hooked it. He's like, okay, you can, yeah. call, you can call this one phone that I have. <laughs> it's hooked into the wall. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and we can let people up that way. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would say anyone who's, you know, looking uh, at their life and saying, oh, I'm forced to have a cell phone, I'm forced to have a laptop. I mean, no one's forcing you to do anything. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I, I would, uh, yeah, I would challenge you to look for alternatives. Hey, look, literally heard a guy say that he had a porn addiction and he would always be tempted to look at porn on his phone. So what he did was he gave his phone to one of his best friends and said, I want you to put a security code that I don't know. Mm. And, 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 and as a result of that, he can't use his phone to visit sites that in his sober frame of mind, he doesn't want to visit. And he says it does cause him inconveniences because there are times where he needs to look up certain things that have nothing to do with his addiction and his phone security is too strict to let him do it. And he'll have to go to his wife and be like, can I use your phone for that? And he knows that he's not going to look at that kind of stuff on his wife's phone, right? Mm. And so he's paying a price for the way that he wants to be free. Hmm. And the way that he's doing that is by negotiating this story of, I can't, I can't, I gotta have this, I gotta have that. The world has forced me to do this. 
you will never have options from any other vantage point other than a vantage point that sees yourself as having the power to choose. As long as you see yourself as someone that's being forced by these technologies to live a certain way, you'll never choose another path. But the moment you say, nope, I'm choosing it all, whether I like my choices or not, you acquire the power to recreate your life by choosing new options. Mm. What you're ultimately talking about there, both of you are talking about this, are finding ways to find the appropriate amount of friction for you. Because that level of friction for someone else may be stifling. And for someone else, having the smartphone at all may be not enough friction, right? right. And so it's determining, and the only way you can figure that out is by figuring out how much is too much, how much is too little. And that's how you home in on what is enough. And of course, over time, that enough will change as well. What was enough yesterday may be too much today. What is too much today may not be enough tomorrow. And as that enough point changes for you, as your preferences change, as your ideals of what it means to live a meaningful life change, whatever is changing constantly questioning, is this enough or is it too much? Mm. Because if you don't have enough friction, you're not going to have freedom. We think if we get rid of all the friction in our lives, that's going to give me absolute freedom. I can do whatever I want yeah. whenever yeah. I want to do it. And if I do that, I just careen from one side to the other mm. and I'm getting hurt. And so that's not real freedom. That is uh, a particular kind of sort of perverse tyranny. I'm tyrannized yeah. by so many endless options. I'm tyrannized by the lack of friction in my life, the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want. Mm. That's absolute certainty. And it creates extreme boredom in our lives as well. Mm. Really quickly, I heard someone say that freedom is not merely the right to do what we want, but it's the power to do what we wish. And there's freedom from constraint but then there is the freedom that's acquired through constraint, right? And that goes along with your point about friction, that what kind of friction are you willing to adopt in order to be free in the way you want to be? Let's check in with Lindsay. She has a question for us. Hi, my name is Lindsay, and I am from Indianapolis, Indiana. Do you replace an item? In this instance, it would be an iPhone when it's starting to degrade and not always functioning properly, or do you rate to replace an item until it is completely useless? I think it really depends. In our minimalist rule book, 16 Rules for Living with Less, one of them, which you can find on our website, by the way, theminimalists.com, you can download it over there. One of those rules is called the don't upgrade rule. So I printed this out right here. Very simple upgrade rule. I'll read it to you really quickly. The newest, latest, greatest version of Product X is available today. It's only X dollars and it does all the cool things you wish it could do. Act now and Product X will change your mm. life. Mm. We know we don't need Product X to have a good life, even though we really, really want it. We know we don't have to buy the new iPhone when our old phone works just fine. We know we don't need a new car just because the, because the old one isn't as shiny. Just as we know we don't need the latest version of software, iPad, television, laptop, or gadget to make us happy. Advertisers spend millions of dollars to create a sense of urgency to make us drool over their products. But we can refuse to play that game. We can turn down the noise. We can focus on what we have instead of what we don't have. I think that's one of the 
the keys here. And I'll, I'll get to the three things we can do that are a bit more practical, less abstract. But quite often, we're so focused on what we don't have. And as soon as we have it, the, the, then we, we stop thinking about it at all. Mm-hmm. We don't, obviously don't think about requi- uh, acquiring it. Pain, to me, is the physical manifestation of this. Ryan, you probably don't realize that your right knee doesn't hurt right now. <laughs> but if it did hurt, and it hurt immensely, it'd be the only thing that you could think about. And yet we do that with our material possessions as well, mm. our material purchases. There's that pain of, oh, I don't own it. And if I only owned it, then maybe this pain would go away. That's not real pain. That's a desire. Now, it's a mimetic desire because advertisers or someone else has told you that your life would be better or more complete. This is consumerism, by the way. Your life would be better or more complete if you owned that product. That the pain of not owning would go away. No, no, no. That pain would then transfer to the next thing that you want, the next ceaseless desire, the next empty desire. Hmm. And we keep jumping from desire to desire to desire, not knowing that it is actually the desire that makes us feel alive. We don't want to extinguish the desire. We want to desire the desire. And hmm. so in the, uh, the rule, it goes on to say, sure, sometimes things break or wear out. And when that happens, we are left with at least three options. Option number one, go without. It's almost taboo in our culture. It seems radical to many people. Why would I go without when I could just buy a new one? Often this option is the best option, though. When we go without, it forces us to question our stuff. It forces us to discover whether or not we actually need it or get value from it. And sometimes we discover life without it is actually better than before. Second option here, repair it. This is something we don't talk about in our culture, right? Sometimes we can't necessarily go without. But instead of running out and procuring procuring product X, we can attempt to repair the item first. You wouldn't buy a new car just because the brakes needed to be replaced, would you? Mm. That's what happens quite often, right? I used, I used to literally do that. That's <laughs> crazy to me. No, Expand on that. No, it's so like every two years, uh, back in the corporate days, I'd buy a new truck because like every two years is when everything needed to be done. Brakes, tires, you know, I go to bring it to the mechanic and they're like, or the dealership, and they're like, oh yeah, you need $3,000 worth of work. I'm like, but if I trade this in, I can just continue my payment. I mean, that was my mentality. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, Wish I would have just held on to that very first truck that I bought, paid it off, done all the repairs on it. Uh, you know, my 40-year-old self is much more wiser than my 25-year-old self, but I was 100% right on that. My brakes went out and tires needed needed change. I'm like, time for a new truck. That's funny because I was the opposite on that very topic with, with cars. I was the opposite. I was the guy who one month, I'd have to get the brakes fixed. Then the next month, get all the tires changed. Mm. Then the next month, something else breaks down and I'm hanging on to this car because I want to save on the transaction cost of having to get a new one. And I'm hanging on and I'm milking it as far as it can go. And it gets to the point where I sit back and I do the math and I say, man, the amount of money and time and heartache I'm pouring into this thing Mm -hmm. isn't really worth it. And it would probably be smarter for me to just cough up the money to get a new car, even if that hurts a little. And so I think it's very important when you're thinking about, should I get rid of this? Should I upgrade this? To think about 
more than one type of cost. We often think about transaction costs, which is the price tag cost, but there's the opportunity cost and a host of other kinds of costs. What else are you losing in your quest to save money? Sometimes in order to cut down on transaction costs, we end up complicating our lives in ways that cost us more opportunity, more wealth than you know, we would have uh, originally lost, you know what I mean? And, and sometimes just by upgrading the thing or placing the thing, you can put yourself in a position to just have fewer things to think about. So mm. it works both ways for it sure. Does. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, I think about my phone though, because I think that's what this question was about, was about the phone. Yeah. And uh, I, I will use my phone as long as I can. I'll replace the battery because the batteries start to expand and, you, you know, you lose the... You, you lose the, you know, quality of, of the of the battery charge, so on and so forth. Usually I, it gets to a point, it's not where it's completely not working. Um, so I don't ever wait till something is just, well, I, my phone specifically, I don't wait till it's completely not working. Um, I've had that happen a couple of times on accident, but, yeah. but you know, in general, yeah. um, when I find myself uh, really being held back and it's usually because the phone starts to slow down, for whatever reason, I'm not saying it's big corporate planned obsolescence, uh, obsolescence, wink, wink, but <laughs> something always slows my phone down eventually. Yeah. And as soon as it starts to get to a point where it's holding me back from like moving at the speed that I want to move, um, then that's usually when I'm like, okay, I'm starting to think about maybe upgrading. Yeah. And yeah. so we have three options here. We went through the first two here. You can go without for a period of time. And I think the true thing that that does, it does one of two things. It either shows you that maybe this thing really does add value to my life or, hey, maybe my life's actually better without it. It is an obsolete object for me that I've been clinging to unknowingly, right? Mm. That's the first option. Second option is repair it. If it's just a battery issue with your laptop, why get a brand new right. laptop? If it just breaks in your car, why get a brand new car? But the TK's point from earlier, the, the third option is replace it. As a last resort, we can replace things. But even when we do, we can do so mindfully. We can purchase used items. We can buy products from local businesses. Or we can downgrade and still live, still have what is necessary to live a fulfilling life. And that's one thing we don't ever talk about is instead of upgrading, what if we downgraded? And yeah, I did this at one once upon a time. Instead of owning a Lexus, I downgraded to a Toyota. Now, in my mind, it's an upgrade for several other reasons. In fact, I would say every upgrade is a downgrade in some respect. You're sure. downgrading your bank account as soon as you mm. buy a brand new car. Yeah. Or if you downgrade, it's an upgrade in other uh, respects of your life as well. And so it's understanding that every downgrade might give you a little more peace, a little more tranquility. And so Yes, you can replace the thing. You can buy a used car. You can buy a used phone. I'm not saying you have to do these things, mm -hmm. but recognizing that these options are available to you allow you to make the best decision instead of mindlessly, oh, it's every year. I guess I need, it's time for my new phone. It's time for my new car. It's mm -hmm. time for my new house. It's time for my new apartment, whatever it is, just because I'm on some sort of schedule of upgrading. You don't have to play that game. It's time for my new Yeezys. <laughs> <laughs> the annual Yeezys. The annual Yeezys. <laughs> hey, by the way, I'm, I'm currently reading a book called How to Break Up with Your Cell Phone. And I would love Ooh. to get the author of that book on this show sometime, but we'll see. Um, but I'm, I'm exploring ways of like, you know, minimizing that relationship. I, I buy very strongly into narratives that say I got to have it all the time. So I'm just trying little things. Like if I go into the grocery store, you know, like put the phone in the trunk and just like 
survive without having it on your body for the next 15 minutes. If there's really an emergency, you can come out and get it out of the trunk. And that's really hard for me, but I'm just kind of pushing my small boundaries and, and trying to convince myself that it's more possible than I originally thought. Yeah, one of my favorite things is leaving my phone in the car when I'm out to dinner with someone. Yeah. yeah. Let's check back in with the live stream. In Alabama, we have some more uh, questions. We do. We have a question from Raquel. How can I support my 16 and 17-year-olds who hate high school but think I give too much unwanted advice? Hmm. Unwanted advice. It sounds like a either a, a podcast we did or an essay you wrote, Josh. Yeah, well, we did a, we did both. So we have an essay on the website called The Advice Epidemic that we had turned into a podcast episode where we answered questions about mm. how we were so steeped in advice. Unwanted advice, you know, it, I think the, the pithy framing of it is a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Mm. Right. And so, yes, you can convince your kids, but that's how that's how to unlove your kids, convincing mm. them of a singularly right point of view. However, you can help them better understand. And how do you do that? It has nothing to do with advice. It has to showing them the path. Mm -hmm. And so how old are Raquel's kids? 16 and 17. Yeah, yeah. So they're, of course, at the age where they're thumbing their nose at the parents. They're pushing back on everything. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. just the parents. I mean, so don't take too much offense to that. It's, they're pushing back on everything that's being shoved at them. And one would say necessarily so, because as a child, we necessarily have attachments, right? Because we are attached to our parental figure, specifically to our mother. Mm -hmm. We're attached to them for our survival. But once we hit puberty, we work to actively detach because we ultimately want to become unattached from the power structures of our adolescence and of our youngest years, right? Mm -hmm. We were trying to remove that attachment. And so they'll do things that we'll look back on and say, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that, but they don't know any better. And so they're understand they're actively trying to detach from a necessary attachment. Why? Because human beings value that autonomy. They're, they're trying to shape a life for their own right now. Mm. And I think the best thing that you can do for them is try to under, see them through their eyes, to try to understand them mm. as opposed to try mm. to change them. Yeah, I think back to my like brothers and sisters when they were growing up and when they became teenagers and I did a lot of advice giving and trying to persuade and um, none of it worked. Uh, I'm also not their parent either, but I thought maybe as their sibling, they would listen to me a little bit more. Not the case. Um, but I wish I would have gone about it a little bit differently and I wish I would have supported them whenever I could have supported them because instead of like finding ways to support them and encourage them to be themselves, I nitpicked all the things that I hated seeing them do because I felt like they were hurting themselves. So of course I don't want my siblings to hurt themselves. So I'm going to give that advice. Hey, here's how you don't hurt yourself. You know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, I love giving advice on kids, especially teenagers when I've never raised any. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I know looking back at that relationship with my siblings, even growing up in my household, living with my, my father and stepmom, um, I just wish I was supported a little bit more. There was very little, encouragement for me to be me. It was always, um, it was always trying to make me do things that they thought were best rather than, um, being inquisitive and being curious about, Hey, what are you curious about? It's here's how we are. And here's how we want you to be. Yeah. 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 I think one of the greatest myths in education is that we have the power to teach people who don't want to be taught. 
And it's a prevailing myth because there are lots of things that look like teaching that we do have the power to do. We can force people to shut up. We can use our positional authority to make them sit down, to make them sit still. But ultimately, education doesn't begin until the student opens the heart and mind to the teacher. And that's something that the student has to choose. Even if it's a little kid, that's something they have to choose. And all we can do as teachers is we can try to win their hearts. We can try to intrigue the mind by stimulating it with curiosity, with good questions, good stories, and so on. And it's important to understand this myth because it helps us realize that teaching is something we have to earn the right to do. We have to earn the right to do by taking the time to win the people over that we want to teach. Mm. And so what I would say is if you're frustrating them with unwanted advice is replace the advice with curiosity by starting some conversations about what they care about, what they're interested in, and what their goals are. Because if you can contextualize everything you have to offer them by prioritizing what they care about, then they're going to be far more open to hearing what you have to say. Because now your advice will sound like you are fighting for the possibilities they are trying to actualize rather than trying to control them and make them live the life you want them to live. One last bit of information that I have for you is that I found that in insights or observations go much further than advice. Advice That's is, right. here's what you should be doing based on my experience. And it may be that it is appropriate for them to do it. But telling someone that they should do this is fruitless. But if you give them an observation, hey, from what I've seen in the past, here's what happens when I do this. And, and should has no point of reference. It's just like this objective list of do's and don'ts with no point of reference other than this is what I think you should do. But what if instead of saying, hey, you should do this, I, I said, hey, man, what do you care about? What are you interested in? What are you trying to achieve with your life? What are you afraid of? What's frustrating you right now? What's getting in the way of your concept of the good life? And I just listen for 10 minutes. I use up 10 minutes of my time. Yeah, if, I, if I'm going to say I care about this person, I probably should be willing to give them 10 minutes. If I love them enough to try to give them advice about their life, I probably can afford to give them 10 minutes just listening, right? Think about how much trust I earn, how much rapport we build. When we want to speak, having listened to them for 10 minutes goes a long way in making them a little more likely to listen to us. But the important thing is we can say, oh, okay, well, that's interesting that you want that or that's frustrating uh, to you. Um, hey, would you be interested in this idea? Would you be interested in this strategy? Or would you be interested in meeting this person I know who might be able to help you with that? Now you're still talking about them. You're giving insight, but you're still talking about them. That's winning the heart. This is why all the great mystics always approach their students with questions, not advice not answers. The, right. the Zen Cohen is a great example of a way to teach without teaching at all. We'll check back in with the live stream here in a little bit, but right now it's time for some social media questions. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. Alabama, we got a question from Facebook. Victor asks, how do I minimize my old journals, sketch pads, notebooks, pens, and pencils? I've tried so many times and I just can't let them go. Help. Help! Just send them to me. I'll take care of them for you. <laughs> I got this one, guys. Uh, uh, Victor, what is the sound of one hand clapping? 
Ryan can show you. It's <laughs> not <laughs> <Sound> very loud. <laughs> I feel like you are a little too prepared for that. <laughs> That's I'm stealing that from the Simpsons. It, That's Bart Simpson. It, it kind of sounds like Ryan's <laughs> masturbating into the mic. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Ryan read a book of koans, saw that one, and just like spent an hour figuring out how to solve it. I've been it. waiting to use that for like 25 <laughs> years since I saw that Simpsons episode. <laughs> Victor, yeah. I got something pithy for you. We call these minimal maxims. We put them in the show notes while podcast Sean tweezes them out. Uh, Theminimalists.com slash podcast to find the show notes to all of our episodes. The only way to let go is to stop clinging. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today because we're talking about letting go, but really the only way to do it is to stop clinging. You remember when he deleted all my notes? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought like, it was John, letting go, not John, deleting other people's stuff. No, well, it's funny. <laughs> he still won't let this go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had like, I don't know, essay ideas, song lyrics, jokes. I don't know, like, the you know, all these ideas that I was clearly clinging on to because I had, you know, 42 separate notes that, wow. um, well, it was kind of what we were talking about at the first question. Like, I didn't really even know they were there until I started going through them. I'm like, oh yeah, one day I'm going to use this, you know? <laughs> uh, so Josh, um, and his, uh, uh, you know, benevolent self was like, Hey man, I'm going to show you how to get your notes on iCloud. So he, long story short, deleted all my notes and got me on iCloud. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> but at first I was like, I had this twinge of like, no, like I know there's like at least... <laughs> <laughs> there's four like, there's like 42 I, and I, my brain is like there's at least three of those things I know I wanted <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me last time that I upgraded my computer yeah. uh, the one that was available you ordered it for me it didn't have enough uh, hard drive space right and it was it, that was an exercise for me in letting go because it, I t- tried to do the whole transfer and, and it was like an hour in. It was like, oh, this hard drive's full and it can't transfer everything. You would think the software would be able to read that at first. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, I get to this point and it's just like, so you can choose to exit and basically go back to the factory settings. So I just started with factory settings. Wow. And well, I didn't bring anything over. Not a thing from my previous computer. Not an essay, no photos, nothing was brought over from the previous device and it was so freeing it was as you said terrifying at first Mm -hmm. because it's like oh no wait 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 but then i realized something that was really important everything well here's a better way to put it you strangle everything that you cling to Mm. and i would even say that you strangle everyone that you cling to as well. Mm. So this doesn't just apply to stuff, but you strangle everything that you're clinging to. If you're holding on to a bunch of stuff, including these sketch pads and notebooks and pins and old journals and pencils, whatever you're holding on to, you start to strangle. You strangle the usefulness out of them. You strangle the creativity out of your own life. And if you're doing this with a person in your life, a lover, a friend, etc., you're clinging to them. You're strangling the vitality out of the relationship. Mm. When you cling all the time, you're a walking true crime. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tweet cat that podcast, Sean. Oh, man. You know, I, I, the closest thing I have to this is my old calculus notes. You remember how hard we worked 
in our calculus course, Josh? I remember how hard I worked. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, we worked really hard. The, the, like learning the quadratic formula and the flip it and forget it and like all the different. Th- and I had all these notes and I love math. That's the thing. Like I really enjoy <laughs> understanding like the nuance. Uh, so I'm holding on to these notes thinking that one day I'm going to need these in case I'm, <laughs> in case I'm interested in going back and uh, looking at the nuance of calculus, like not even considering the fact that I could just look it up online. But regardless, um, yeah, I, I thought about scanning them. <laughs> and, I'm, and then I'm like, what am I doing, man? I'm getting rid of these. So if you're holding on to all your journals and all like, why are you holding on to this because you're trying to preserve something? Then great. You can preserve it. There are you don't have to scan it yourself. There are uh, companies you can pay to scan it for you mm-hmm. and they'll get rid of your your notes for you. So you don't even have to get those journals back. They'll just send you scanned pages of it. Yeah. And, and that's really where, uh, you know, if, if this is causing Victor some stress, that's really where he's got to look at like, all right, what are these journals, pencils, pens, wh- wh- so forth and so on? What are these doing for me? Are they causing you joy or are they causing you stress? Sounds like they're causing you stress. So now the next thing is, is like, all right, so how are you going to get rid of, the, of this stress? You look into the scanning it. Maybe you look at it. You're like, that's too much money. I'm not willing to spend that money on it. Well, then you're probably not willing to hold on to your notebooks then. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sometimes in in the comments, people react to these kinds of ideas by by saying, you guys are trying to make me throw away my stuff, right? Because we give a lot of arguments for why you ought to question this and why you should reconsider that. And and then people go to defending their right to hang on to things. Well, I'm going to keep this because it brings me joy in this way and it brings me joy in that way. And the thing I want people to understand is we are not fighting to get you to give away anything that you want to keep. We're fighting for you to fight for the things that you want to keep by actually using them, by actually utilizing them in a way that brings you the joy you say they have the potential to bring. What's deadly is not hanging on to something. What's deadly is telling yourself a story about how something brings you joy and then betraying that very story by burying it in a coffin, never looking at it again until it's time to move and you got to pay a couple of hundred dollars for some extra cubic feet. That's no way to live. If you want the stuff, keep the stuff. But if you're going to keep the stuff, fight to use it for the reasons that reflect that joy you felt when you bought it. Mm, So good. We have have a whole episode about photo scanning. If you want all the specific resources, you can go back and check that out. Head on over to theminimalists.com slash podcast. You can find the archives over there. Libby has a question for us. It's interesting to hear JFM often mention links to their other works, but still say advertisements suck. Busted. Is there a distinction? Ruined. (laughs) Is there a distinction between advertisements from large industries versus small businesses? All right, I'm sitting on my soapbox here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Here's what I'll say. No, there's not a distinction. In fact, I will say that I actually prefer advertisements from large corporations because they're at least, they tend to put some resources into those. So they're, they're a little more um, interesting and uh, aesthetically appealing. Absolutely. Yeah. Entertaining even. Yeah. Although sometimes they even throw in like the random message of like, you know, like you brought up the other day where it it brought up the chess player had nothing to do with the product, but they're like, Hey, here's a chess player you didn't know about. Go learn more about this chess player. Yeah. And so I will say simply a blanket statement, advertisements suck. 
Unfortunately, we conflate advertisement with marketing or promotion. And so when Ryan and TK and I talk about a book that we wrote, or we talk about something we've created for other people to find value in, that is not an advertisement. We have an essay on our website. I would encourage you to read the full thing. I'm certainly not going to read the whole thing because it's like 15 pages, but it's called, Can We Have an Honest Conversation About Advertisements? Mm. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. And The reason this is so important to me is because I think people don't understand the distinction between advertisement and marketing or promotion. And so here's what the, uh, here's how the essay goes. If the following screed were a peer reviewed journal article, it's abstract would be brief. Advertisements suck. Well, at least most of them do. That's not to say that all advertising is inherently evil or even bad because not all advertisements are created equal. They run the gamut from informative to downright destructive. To understand the inherent problems with advertisements, it's important to first point out that advertising isn't the same thing as marketing. Though these two terms are often used interchangeably, they are different in practice. Advertisements are paid announcements via a public medium mattress commercials, infomercials for the latest exercise fad, and seemingly harmless adverts for harmful prescription drugs. And they are generally not an endorsement by the platform on which they are displayed. So an example of that, if all of a sudden we cut to a break right now, and we're talking about Viagra pills, or we're talking about mattresses or underwear, someone is paying us to talk about those things, right? So that's what an uh, advertisement is. In Latin, advertere means to turn toward. And that's exactly the aim of today's ad agencies. They're willing to pay heaps of money to turn your eyes toward their products and services. And if the demand for a product isn't as high as the supply, no problem. Advertising can create a false demand if the budget is high enough. In recent years, worldwide spending on advertising has topped half a trillion dollars. Even writing the full number, 500,000,000,000,000,000, period, zero, zero, commas and all, doesn't come close to truly understanding its depth. So let's put it into perspective. If you leave your home today and begin spending $1 every single second, it will take you more than 15,000 years to spend half a trillion dollars. In fact, if you would have spent a million dollars every single day since the fall of Rome, you still wouldn't have spent half a trillion dollars by now. And so this is every year we're spending half a trillion dollars on advertising. Mm. And we're spending more than that every year on advertising. Every year, which isn't so bad in and of itself. After all, it's just money being spent on informing people about useful stuff, right? Yes, that sort of used to be true. And then I go into this essay, a history of advertising, sort of when it became more pernicious during the uh, turn of the 20th century. And as we started increasing the demand by trying to get people to buy more things they didn't need. The essay goes on to talk about the overreach of advertisers, how we really capitalize on the insecurity of people. And so when I say advertisements suck, it's because quite often these advertisers are paying to be on large platforms to make you feel more insecure. So you'll vote a particular way. So you'll buy a product or service so that you will enrich a corporation or an individual 
And the only way that they see that they can do that is to make you feel inadequate. Because if you feel perfectly whole and complete, then you don't have a need for their product or service. Mm. Another thing that advertisers do, there's a whole section here about selling scarcity. And so act now, limited time only, while supplies last. These advertiser-induced artificial limits are almost always imaginary. You know, it's funny when you go see like, the you drive by car dealership and it's like big sale and it's like well the sale wasn't yesterday like what changed from yesterday that all of a sudden this car is five thousand dollars cheaper mm. well it's mm. that maybe they got more inventory in stock there there are things that that companies will do but generally it has to do with they have a particular quota that they're trying to meet and so they create artificial scarcity i would also say that Advertisers are really good at selling non-essentials and making them feel as though they're essential, right? So they sell us trash until it's good for us, literally. Since American farmers are faced with unprecedented hordes of soybean and corn crops and thus unprecedented waste products from those crops, advertisers have found a way not to safely dispose of the waste, but to repackage it and sell it to you as hydrogenated oil a supposed alternative to healthier oil oils from avocados, olives, almonds, etc. And so that's really just the the tip of the iceberg because the junk food that's sold to us, I mean most of the commercials for food aren't for food. They're for food like products, right? Processed foods and of course uh, inflammatory oils like seed oils that are making us sick. Hmm. Also, advertising to children, which is probably the most insidious uh, uh, of all of the advertisements. But advertisers have found the easiest way to flood our homes with non-essentials by advertising to our children. Not only do kids lack the critical thinking skills to say no to the foods that are killing us, but if they develop brand loyalty early, then Ronald McDonald has a lifetime customer. According to the American Psychology Association, Commercial appeals to children became commonplace with the advent and widespread adoption of television, and they grew exponentially with the proliferation of cable television, which allowed programmers to develop entire channels of child-oriented programming and advertising. Hmm. It's $12 billion a year right now that is used to advertise to the youth just in America. Now, in the essay, it, goes, it talks about the upside of advertising as well. It is possible for advertisements to inform us. And uh, then I talk about the preferences of people, like Sao Paulo, for example, which we covered, I believe, on the last podcast episode during the Advertisement Suck segment. But Sao Paulo outlaw, outlawed billboards all throughout the country because people voted on, hey, this is, this is litter. Our city has become littered with advertisements, and we want to we want to get out of it. And so, uh, the article goes into um, profit, the profit motive, alternatives to advertisements. There's no free lunch. Every hour of network television is peppered with nearly 20 minutes of interruptions, and the same is true for most other mediums, which one would argue is more costly than the free price tag we're giving up for our two most precious resources, our time and our attention to receive the product. So mm. we often think, oh, that podcast is free. Mm. Oh, it's free to turn on the TV and watch that show. But if it's 20 minutes of ads, you're paying with your time and your attention. This is why, and I talk about this in the essay, 
why I always opt for the premium service when possible. If it's Spotify, then get rid of the ad-supported version if you can afford it. When I say afford it, I don't just mean with your money, but I can't afford to spend my time on your products. And so whenever I can remove ads from something, Dan Savage, one of my favorite podcasts, he has a public version, kind of like us. And a, it's by the way, it's how I got minimal versus maximal. Mm. He has a micro versus magnum edition of his podcast. Mm. It's a sex advice show. And what I realized is, oh, yeah. So he has the ad supported free public version. And then he has the paid for subscription model. And it's just ad free and it's twice as long. Wow. I would prefer to pay to not get ads. I pay YouTube $12 a month. I never see an ad on YouTube now, right? Mm -hmm. And now this is from a place of privilege. And I fully recognize I have the privilege of paying $12 a month to get rid of those ads. But what I will say is that there are other mediums that I simply just have opted out of because I don't have that option. That's another place of privilege. I can opt out. I can say no because you are bombarding me with your advertisements. Ultimately, I just want to finish this essay here by talking about marketing because this is what what we do with our podcast. Yes, we talk about products and services, things that we create. I teach a writing class. I talk about that. I don't do advertisements. Ryan and I have never done an advertisement for any of our books. And later during the advertisement suck segment, I have the most disappointing ad of my entire life. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's talk about marketing. The flip side of advertising isn't the absence of communication. It's marketing. So when I say advertisements suck, I'm not saying we need to get rid of all communication. No, of course not. There's a better way to do it. In his book, The Mindset of Marketing, Derek Sivers writes, don't confuse the word marketing with advertising, announcing, spamming, or giving away branded crap. Really, marketing just means being considerate. Marketing means making it easy for people to notice you, relate to you, remember you, and tell their friends about you. What Sivers is describing here is the most honest form of marketing, informing people without manipulating or bothering them. At its ethical zenith, Marketing considers the needs and points and points of view of an audience and works hard to meet those needs by connecting the creators with consumers in an authentic way. In neutral terms, marketing is an unpaid endorsement, often by the creator herself, communicated directly to an audience who's eager to learn more about the product or service. When done well, this is what Seth Godin describes as permission marketing. The privilege, not the right, of delivering anticipated, personal, and relevant messages to people who actually want to get them. It is possible to engage in world-class marketing without spending a penny on advertising. True, both advertising and marketing are forms of promotion. Both allow creators to present their goods and services to a group of people. And when executed poorly, even well-intended marketing can be overkill. Like advertisements, not all marketing messages are created equal. Unfortunately, not every marketer is a paragon of integrity. Just like the advertising world, marketing messages can be laced with misinformation, exaggerations, and propaganda. As The Minimalists, we provide loads of high-quality free creations, essays, podcasts, and quotes, and we occasionally use our platforms to promote a book, event, 
or service. And if we're being forthright, even though we attempt to market with integrity, even we struggle to walk the line between informative and overkill. And when I say that, I'm not saying that we are ever beating anyone over the head, but I'm constantly talking to everyone on the team about we don't want to beat people over the head with promotional messages, with marketing, with promotions, et cetera. Obviously, we don't do advertising, but even when we're promoting something, I want to do it tastefully in a way that adds value to other people's lives. And while we won't accept a dollar to advertise on our podcast, we'll happily recommend things that have added value to our lives. That's what the whole added value, it's the spirit of the added value segment on our podcast is, hey, really getting value from this. It's not sponsored by anyone. So you can know that we actually get value from it. Mm, yeah. And Libby, I don't want you to, mm. I don't want you to think that it, it, it goes unnoticed with us, that everything we do is steeped in irony. So when we say advertisements suck, but we're talking about something we're doing, yeah, that's a little ironic. I get what you're saying. But to Josh's point, I mean, we're promoting something that we created, that we truly, truly believe in. And there are products that we've actually talked about where they have come to us and they're like, hey, we heard you mention this product on your podcast. Can we work out some kind of, you know, advertisement thing? Well, you know, paid promotion thing. And we're like, no, because then we have to talk about it. We don't want to have to talk about anything. That's right. And it's also the reason we don't monetize our YouTube channel. By the way, that would extend our reach significantly mm. by monetizing it and it allows you know, more because what happens is YouTube puts you more in their algorithms if they're running a bunch of ads right. on your videos. And understandably so, they're a business, they're allowed to do that. I'm not, I'm grateful that YouTube gives us a platform to simply upload a video. Yeah. And I'm not entitled to anything. It cracks me up when I hear creators, YouTubers say, oh, I've been demonetized, I've been restricted. What a, YouTube's giving you a platform for free right. to upload 4K video. You don't have to pay $100,000 for a server. I get to just upload my videos. How awesome is that? But I'm not going to monetize the channel. Why? Because how awful would it be to place ads on the art that we create? Mm -hmm. Because to me, this is our audio art. And I don't want a McDonald's ad. I don't want a Pepsi ad. I don't want a KFC ad. I don't want an underwear ad. I don't want mm -hmm. a pharmaceutical ad Man. on our podcast. Yeah. And so what we do is we opt out. Yes, we opt out of the money. Mm-hmm. But then we simply say, hey, if you want to support our show, you can do that. Patreon.com slash The Minimalists. You can support us. You can keep the show 100% advertisement free. Dude, we are steeped <clears throat> in this economy. We are steeped in this, uh, this economy of, of advertisements. And, you know, listening to you read that essay, I'm like, Jesus Christ, it sounds really hopeless. Like, it's just everywhere. You can't get away from it, you know? Mm -hmm. But then I, I'm, certain, I'm starting to think, first off, like, oh, how can we change the system, right? Because I'm a big idea guy. And then I'm like, there's no way. There's no way that, like, the three of us could change this system. This system is, it's been, it is, like, full blast right now. But what we can do is we can decide on a day-to-day, on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, we can decide what we do with our time and who we give our attention to. And... Because we do come from a place of privilege where we have this platform to talk to millions of people, um, we also have the opportunity to decide what we are feeding people or what we're not feeding people. So, uh, yeah, anyone out there feeling a little helpless about living in an, uh, an economy like this, um, you, you do have ways to opt out yourself. Both of you guys use the word privilege. So I've got to say something that's very important because privilege comes up a lot in discussions on minimalism, right? This is a message for the privilege. That's the kind of stereotype. 
every year, young people from economically disadvantaged backgrounds and poor families are given the opportunity to receive free money in the form of credit cards with really high interest rates. Unbeknownst to them, using those credit cards will cause them to mortgage their future and become debt slaves for the next decade. They're not going to use those credit cards to invest in anything because most of them don't have the financial literacy to even know what to invest in. But more importantly, you're not likely to find an investment vehicle that can outpace the interest rate that you'll have to give back to the bank in exchange for that credit card. Which means that even if they don't come from a background where they have a lot of money or have a lot of stuff, they are so infected with consumerism that when they receive these credit cards, they are literally going to trade in the next decade of their lives by spending money they don't have to buy stuff. Where does that mindset come from? Come from? It comes from a culture that teaches them how to consume without teaching them how to create. The advertisements that tell you to buy this or that you'll be happy if you get this, they're not telling you how to live a lifestyle or how to train your mind to become the kind of creator who solves problem for, problems for people or creates wealth for society. They're just telling you what you need to buy in order to become wealthy. That is something that infects the minds of the rich and the poor alike. And I would argue, I'm not gonna make the full case here, I would argue that it hurts the poor more. Mm. I would argue that consumer culture affects the people who don't have stuff and who can't afford stuff yes. even more. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I just had to come in on that really quickly. But I, I would say there's nothing wrong to get to this, this uh, question or this concern. There's nothing wrong with accepting a paycheck in exchange for promoting something as long as you do it in good faith and with, good, with clarity of conscience. But that's qualitatively different from promoting something that you yourself created or you yourself consumed and you want to share with the rest of the world. Why? Because you can't accept a paycheck without also accepting accountability to the person or party that you're accepting a paycheck from. And so if someone is paying me to promote their orange juice, their gym shoe, or their book, they get to have a say, and it's only fair, on not only what I say when I'm promoting the product, but what I say in the entire context in order to make sure that it's compatible with the image and brand that I'm promoting. So there is no such thing as accepting advertising revenue without also accepting accountability to the advertiser. And most people today have sold their souls not for money in exchange to go kill somebody or do something really evil. Most people have sold their souls in exchange for the right to laugh at what they think is funny, the right to speak what they think is true, and most people are walking around not saying what they really feel or what they really think because they've sold out. There's nothing wrong with selling, but when it leads to you selling your soul, then that's the problem. And for many people, that's precisely what advertising does to them. Mm. Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your text message. You can text your questions, your comments, your concerns, your emojis to 937-202-4654. Yes, indeed. We answer those questions regularly, especially here on the podcast. Also, if you're on our text list, we'll send you a Monday morning minimal maxim every Monday, a little something pithy, something insightful, something simple to start off your week with a dose of simplicity. Alabama, looks like we've got a question here from Sydney. How do you deal with the anxiety of wanting something gone immediately, but 
taking the time to actually go through the box or scan all the papers is too overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Here's what I'll say. During the lightning round, each of us, we do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes, which you can find over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. That way you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. Put 60 seconds on the clock for me, Professor Sean. So, Sydney, it's hard to find a needle in a haystack. It's even harder to find it in a needle stack. Hmm. <laughs> Let me expand on that real quick because I have a, a little bit of time on the clock. I often would go into my basement when I owned these hordes of stuff. And I knew I had a thing or thought I had the thing because I had all of these things that I thought were meaningful to me. Everything that I had was significant to me. But of course, if everything's significant, how could any of it possibly be significant? It's overwhelming, so I'm not going to deal with it. Although, you still have to deal with it. You deal with it because it becomes mental clutter. It becomes spiritual clutter. It's not just physical clutter. And it becomes time clutter, right? Because now I'm going down there, I'm dealing with it every time I'm looking for a thing that I want. It's covered up by a hundred things that I don't want. So you have to deal with it. Whether it's now or later, you are dealing with it. Mm. Mm. That's so good. Yeah. Um, My pithy... My, it's pithy, right? I, I always, man, yeah, I'm so sorry. Hey man, whatever I you say, we, my first we 15 get you, seconds man. on, we on get you. pithy versus pithy. <laughs> All right. If it's not worth sorting through, it's not worth keeping. When you look at that box of stuff, does it make you feel like Christmas? Where it's like, ah, you're filled with anticipation and you just want to open it up to see what's inside so that you can figure out a way to use it. If it feels like Christmas, keep it. Keep it around. That brings a lot of joy to your life. On the other hand, if it makes you feel like, ah, oh, exasperated and sad, why do that to yourself? There's nothing wrong with doing things that are painful and difficult and uncomfortable, but you should only do such things when they are pragmatically necessary or if there is some higher aim or purpose for why you do them. Yeah, put up with difficult family members sometimes. Yeah, put up with the pain of working out. There's a higher aim and purpose for doing those things. But if that box and stuff is creating pain in your life and there's no higher aim or purpose for it, Get rid of everything that doesn't feel like Christmas. Ryan, what I love about what TK is saying here is that if it feels like Christmas, wonderful. But if it feels like your credit card after Christmas, yeah, that stress, that anxiety, that why did I do this? Why yeah. did I buy this? Why did I keep it? Then, yeah, I'm going to have to let it go. Did, did yeah. that count towards my time right there? <laughs> no, no, no. Wait, 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 real quick. No. But if it doesn't feel like Christmas, you better have a reason for putting up with it that feels like Christmas. Mm. This is becoming pythier less and pythier less. <laughs> Throw a clock on Give for me him. 60 seconds. All right. Uh, here's my pithy answer. Internal clutter is a side effect of external clutter. So at its terminus, let's look at a hoarder, right? They have so much stuff. They're, it's cr literally crushing them in some cases. And what is happening is there is an internal struggle going on that they have to deal with first. And that is often what we have to do. We have to deal with that internal struggle, struggle first before we, we handle these external things. Now, sometimes our stuff, maybe, maybe we're not struggling. Maybe it's just inconvenient. But, you know, I could look at working out as inconvenient. Last night, I had to do my uh, physical therapy exercises. I had to do them at nine o'clock at night. I didn't want to do them. It was hard. It was difficult. I pushed through. And not only did I push through that discomfort, but I got something out of it where I'm like, oh, I have to plan my days different. 
So when we push through that discomfort, that is really where we learn a lot. But if you can't push through that discomfort, maybe you want to deal with that external clutter first. Yeah, I think one confers the other, right? You've got all of this clutter. The external clutter leads to the internal clutter. And (laughs) it the internal clutter then breeds what? More external clutter. We got a lot more to talk about on the private podcast. We got some other segments for you, a little home tour. But first, Malabama, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, minimalists. This is Suzanne from the Netherlands. I'm a huge board game fan, so naturally I have a lot of board games. When I started decluttering them, I would not ask myself whether I enjoy the game or whether I would like to play it. Instead, I'd ask myself whether I own a similar game that I would rather play. This helped me to get rid of games that I really like, but that I would never play. For me, this heuristic also works for shoes or clothes. I ask myself, every time that I could wear this, would I rather wear something else? If so, I can safely get rid of it. Hi there, Josh and Ryan. My name's Frankie. I'm 26 and I'm from Yorkshire in the UK. I came across your documentary, Minimalism, just over a year ago when my girlfriend and I were looking for something to watch one evening. Prior to that, honestly, I just thought of life as a series of life goals to achieve. Moving to London and getting a well-paid corporate job was a huge part of that. I was clever and hardworking enough. That was just what people like me did. Then it finally came. The opportunity to earn one and a half times my graduate salary. I jumped at the chance and I was ecstatic. However, after six months, after the novelty wore off, I was miserable. I was working 60-hour weeks, was barely leaving the house, was fighting with my girlfriend and was constantly ill. Most painfully, though, I wasn't working towards a cause that aligned at all with my values. After watching your documentary, it was mad. It was like you were talking to me directly letting me in on a worldwide conspiracy of a society conning me into needing to work crazy hours to earn lots of money in order to buy things I didn't even want. It was a complete light bulb moment. I quit my job. I sold, donated and threw out half of my stuff. Suddenly I had more time and energy to figure out what I was really passionate about. So I applied to train to be a teacher. I moved back up to Yorkshire and moved to the countryside. What has benefited me the most, however, is that I have less anxiety and stress. It has allowed me time and space to focus wholeheartedly on my relationships with those closest to me. I've been working on repairing relationships with my family and I've never felt more able to talk openly and honestly with my girlfriend. Minimalism meant that I even had time, energy and love left over to rescue a dog. At the beginning of all this, I never thought that something as simple as getting rid of my stuff would lead to building stronger relationships with those I love the most. I'm so grateful to you both for the work you do, and hopefully I can come give you a hug in person one day when you're next in the UK. Bye now. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. We're here with the whole team, and of course, Emma and Jess and Podcast Sean are with us in spirit. They're floating around like poltergeists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're not dead. (laughs) Well, they're not dead to you. (laughs) She. This is October. (laughs) I am going to do, during our our home tour segment, I 
I'm showing off our minimalist Halloween decoration. So mm. stay tuned for that. If you, uh, well, <laughs> it's just a sock on your junk, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it was a costume. Yeah. <laughs> it just has like two little googly eyes on there. You're revealing a lot about your fantasies. <laughs> I feel like I feel like YouTube gonna make us get like the, what is it like the NC seventeen <laughs> rating. <laughs> we don't put this on YouTube, so we're good. And it's on right. Patreon. That's right. Which, by the way, let me. Um, Most of them get our jokes. That's why advertisements. <laughs> well, I want I want to talk about this real quick. Just an <laughs> announcement for our patrons. So this past weekend, we put up a poll on Patreon that said. Hey, we have a couple options here. For the last 10 episodes or so, we've been testing out the beta version of the Patreon video player. Instead of using private YouTube links for our private podcast, Ryan, we are using the Patreon player on Patreon. Hmm. And we wanted people to vote. Hey, now you have 10 episodes. On, we have 10 episodes under our belt. We want to let you know, here are the pros, here are the cons. The pros of using the Patreon player is higher video quality, for sure. It doesn't mm. compress the way YouTube does, which is really nice. Mm. Also, you can play it right in the Patreon app, and that user experience for most of our patrons, I've learned, is a superior user experience for most people. Um, also, on Patreon, we're able to play music sort of during the added value segment, or if we have something else we want to play throughout the episode, you know, a commercial or something like that, we're not going to get flagged by YouTube. So what happens with the private podcast if we play some music? Even though it's under fair use, YouTube will often come in and say, ah, we're going to copyright claim that. And now they start running ads on our videos, which was driving me crazy, mm. right? Because we just want to play a Matt Nathanson song when Matt Nathanson's on the podcast. We use it under fair use. We acknowledge the song with him. We discuss the song with him. And yet the algorithms, the AI just goes in and says, nope, this song belongs to this company. And therefore, we'll start running ads on your video and claiming the money from the video. Mm. Patreon, as long as we're using copyrighted material under fair use, we can't just like, Hey, our, we're going to play Frozen today on the podcast. <laughs> we're going to stream us watching Frozen. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Actually, us watching Frozen would still be what is? considered fair use. But, oh, man. Um, My wheels are turning now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you're going to be turning away all the patrons. <laughs> so anyway, um, we put out this poll and I gave them four options. Uh, well, Jordan and I did because this is really uh, to help Jordan figure out the best path forward. The first option was Yes, keep the Patreon player. I prefer it because of the higher video quality. And I prefer it because I like the Patreon app and, and, and the way that it works. That was your first vote. The, other, the second vote was, all right, switch back to YouTube because I prefer that experience. Because one of the big cons, at least theoretically, is right now, Patreon does not have closed captioning, auto-generated closed mm. captioning. Now, Fortunately, we have only two hearing impaired patrons who have mentioned this at all. Now, uh, we're cognizant of that, and we want to provide closed captioning and even transcripts potentially for those people. It's just Patreon doesn't have that option, although I talked with our uh, Patreon rep this morning, and she said that by the end of the year, they hope to roll out closed captioning on Patreon. So that was the second, second option. You can, we can switch back to YouTube and use private YouTube links. We'll lose a little bit in quality. We won't be able to play music and other copyrighted materials under fair use with YouTube. 
but we would get transcripts and closed captioning back. Um, and then the other two options were, I don't really care. Both of them are great for me. That was a, a vote. And then the, the fourth option was, hey, I basically just listened to the audio version of the podcast. I barely, rarely ever watch the video. Mm. And that was actually the number one. I think you have the poll pulled up, Alabama. Yeah, that one was the overwhelming majority of people said, I just listened to the audio and once in a while I'll watch the videos. And by the way, I only sent this to people who subscribe to the video version of the podcast. So if you're listening to the audio version, I didn't even send you this poll because it's not applicable to you, right? If you're only listening to the audio. But if you pay for the video version, you just check it regularly. Maybe this doesn't really matter to you. Mm-hmm. And then there was a large chunk of people who said, hey, I'm happy with either, which yeah. was great. Mm-hmm. But I think it was, what, 14 versus 21%? Was... Yeah, it was pretty minuscule. The The smallest category was definitely revert back to the private YouTube links. But most people, if they didn't just listen to the audio, they were fine with Patreons or they were fine with either. Yeah. And so what we've learned is our paying audience, the private podcast subscribers prefer the Patreon video version. Although the comments were really great. Everyone's saying, hey, we really would love, like I'm not hearing impaired, but I'd really love to have a closed caption option for people. By the way, I love our Patreon subscribers for that, right? The majority of people said like, I don't, I'm not hearing impaired, but I I would love that option so everybody can be included. I love that, man. Yes. Dude, our patrons are... They are... Um, Shout out to y'all. Yeah, they're like uh, the kindest... I don't know. Like when we do those Sunday symposiums, it's all, you know, patrons that are there pretty much. And um, it's a it's like the most, I don't know, peaceful vibe. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Really, I really love our patrons too, man. I, I support that, TK. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I'll say is that we're going to, for now, keep it as Patreon video because of the higher quality and the upgrades that Patreon plans on doing. The one other thing that is on their radar is the the timestamp jumps, mm. being able to jump to oh, yeah. a, a two hours and 15 minutes. You can do that with the slider, but be able to click a link that takes me to two hours, 15 minutes. Yeah. That's also something they are working on, uh, the IT team over at Patreon. It's not as simple as just clicking a button, turning on closed captioning. I mean, building closed captioning from the ground up costs YouTube multi, many millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and then perfecting it took a long time. Now, thankfully, you can build sort of on the the backs of the giants now and it'll be easier for patreon to implement this than it was for youtube i remember when closed captions first started there was a whole retin link skit about this oh yeah it was great <laughs> because the the captions were so bad at first it was almost like the bad lip readings if you've ever seen those yes. yeah oh they're so good and now the transcripts on youtube are truly outstanding they're yeah. 99.9 Wow. Effective. Cool. And so my guess is Patreon will be building on that. And so we'll revisit this at the end of the year. Right now, for the time being, we're going to stay on Patreon. If, however, there is a hearing impaired person who needs some sort of transcript, you can reach out to us on the DMs and uh, let us know. And we'll find a way to make that happen, if not immediately, within the not too distant future. Yeah. Just slide into our DMs. We'll take care of you. Uh, now, as minimalists, all I heard, I heard the uh, genuine pony in my in my head when he said, "Just slide it to our DMs." I just heard that. Doom, 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 doom. Okay. Now, as minimalists, have we considered just doing both? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did I just drop an atom bomb on Jordan? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a day's worth of work, essentially. But oh um, shoot, okay. Minor details. Yeah, 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 yeah. a day's worth, no, worth of work for the video, and we uploading it to one other place, and it's one. Here's the problem: is we're constantly uploading and re-uploading. Oh yeah, I was it, thinking of the streaming portion of it. 
uploading portion. I get you. There's another piece to it than just the streaming. Portion. Yeah, we're streaming yeah. on YouTube right now. So the YouTube link is uh, the streaming link is YouTube. Gotcha. The we're talking about the actual maximal episode is via the private podcast player on Patreon. And the nice thing about that is you can have it on your phone in the app. As long as you've downloaded the app, you can watch the video version. Yeah. Or, of course, if you're listening to the audio, you can just stream it on whatever RSS podcatcher you're listening to. Yeah. Apple Podcasts or Feedly or Acast or Overcast, etc. Hey, uh, what does Angry Kermit think? <laughs> I don't know. Angry Kermit, what do you think? You know, I, I don't have anything, any feelings about that right now, but... <laughs> <laughs> Mallory, where's my f- latte? <laughs> Jordan, you're a treasure. Oh my we god! Love you so much. I thought it was going to be Mallory with the angry Kermit, but it was it was not. No, it was someone is, else. Kermit's we'll let it remain not, a mystery if you're not watching the video. Kermit's not in my repertoire. <laughs> if you're watching the video, you're still not going to know. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> right, it's just us on video. <laughs> I thought maybe on the wide shot, it got everybody. It was me even doing ventriloquy. <laughs> wow. I like a Kermit puppet. Mm. <laughs> we got a bunch more to dive into. We got a more about less segment that we'll start off with here. This little segment we do where we read an article as a jump off point. And I thought this one is an amazing coincidence, TK. The title of this is The People Deciding to Ditch Their Smartphones. Mm. And this is from the BBC wow. by Suzanne Bairn. She's a business reporter. And the log line of this article is, in a world where many of us are glued to our smartphones, Dulce Cowling is something of an anomaly. She has ditched hers. The 36-year-old decided at the end of last year that getting rid of her handset would improve her mental health. So over Christmas, she told her family and friends that she was switching to an old Nokia phone that could only make and receive calls and text messages. She recalls that one of the pivotal moments that led to her decision was a day at the park with her two boys, age six and three. I was on my mobile phone at the playground with the kids and I just looked up and every single parent, there were 20 of them, were looking at their phones just scrolling away. Mm -hmm. This is exactly why I say scrolling is the new smoking. If Ryan were to light up a cigarette right now, TK and I would look at him like, what the hell are you doing? What are you, why are you doing that? But of course, if I, we were sitting together and Ryan just started scrolling on his phone, it's commonplace. It's almost nothing. And yet, one thing that I will do now, it's a rule that I've implemented in my own life. It's not really a rule. It's simply a tool. That if I need to send a text message, I will say, excuse me, while I take this text message. Because even if I were to answer the phone in front of you, TK and I are having a conversation. He's talking, talking. I just answer the phone. Yes, go ahead. And he's like still trying to talk to me. Uh -huh. I'm going to look like an insane person. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, if I just peek at my phone real quick, it's become somewhat acceptable. It's become commonplace. It's certainly become the norm. And so what I've done, because I will develop a bad habit around interrupting us with my text messages, I will mm. say, if it's something truly important, this happened to me the other day when I was with Bex, we were having dinner together and we were getting ready to go to a movie and I realized I didn't have the tickets to the movie on my phone. And instead of looking them up right there in front of her, in fact, I started to, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. 
pardon me for a moment while I take care of this. And I literally stood up, walked around the corner, did the thing I needed to do to acknowledge that her attention was precious to me. Because otherwise, ah, your attention's great until something else grabs my attention. Mm. Returning to the text of the article here. By, by the way, that also could have been an uh, introduction to an R&B video. You with your girl, and you're like, I need to go handle something right quick. And you go around the corner, pick up the phone. What's up, girl? Didn't I tell you not to call me? When I- <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. She says, I thought, when did this happen? Everyone is missing out on real life. I don't think you get to your deathbed and think you should have spent more time on Twitter or reading reading articles online. I think that's another thing. We, we confuse information with wisdom. We confuse information with living meaningfully. But it's information clutter, most of it. It's political yeah. clutter, it's yeah. news clutter, it's media clutter, it's entertainment clutter. We have all of this excess in our lives and it goes so far beyond the stuff. And we have this device in our pocket that provides a lot of digital clutter, different forms of clutter. And it's just draining our attention. We talked earlier about it being the most precious resource that we have. What an amazing privilege that I have 24 hours in the day today. But what's more precious than those 24 hours? How I spend my attention during those 24 hours. Because if Mm. I buy something and I don't like it, I can return it and get a refund. But if I misspend my time or I misspend my attention, there is no refund for misspent attention. Ooh. Yeah, man. Come on. I, uh, yeah, I think we uh, you said you said something about information and how we confuse that for entertainment. Um, yeah, you know, I would just combine those two words. It's infotainment, and it does a really good job of masking itself as like doing some good in our lives. Um, man, I am like I. It's funny. I'll go through these stents of like no media, and then I hear something in the news or see something on Twitter. I'm like, oh, I got to look into this, and then I get like sucked right back in. So I'm like constantly on this wave of like no media, media, no media, media. But what I'll tell you is. Never once have I actually looked at any of it and been like, oh, I'm so glad I saw that today. Because if anything, it just makes me worry about something that might happen. And oh man, I forget who told me this, but they're like, you know, if if you worry about it now before it happens, and then it does actually happen, well, now you're just, you're worrying now for no reason. So um, yeah, that infotainment can really suck us in because it feels like we're gaining some type of knowledge, but really just kind of pacifying ourselves with stress and anxiety. It's crazy. Yeah, it's like... um dopamine hit knowledge. We usually associate dopamine hits with just like the pleasure, right? There's some funny video or whatever. And and we don't even pretend to be learning something, but there's just a dopamine hit from getting that attention or watching something funny. But there's also a version of that that has to do with learning as well. You know, reading a bunch of tweets or scrolling through and, and seeing what everybody's up to can really make you feel like you are learning something and growing a lot. And most of that stuff that we do online just can't compete at all with with returning to the old way of making learning a deliberate decision. I'm going to sit down and read this book. I'm going to sit down and watch this documentary. I'm going to sit down and have this conversation, you know. But hey, you know, one thing I'll say just to kind of make this personal, I'm going through all of this right now. I am the poster boy for someone who has been completely sold on the story that says we can't get away from it. We got to have a phone. We got to have a computer and we got to have it on us all the time. Current TK is fully bought into that story. And at the same time, I'm committed to 
forcing that story to earn my loyalty against as many experiments as I can come up with. Like I no longer want to just give my loyalty to that story because that's what I've been convinced with by the past. I want to see how far I can go step by step, bit by bit with extricating my life from this phone. Because when I think about the ideal version of me, it's a guy who's closer to that person who owns the Nokia. The ideal version of me just never surface, uh, never, what is it, a scrolls, uh, you know, it's surfing online. Yeah, that's the ideal version of me. Like, I just read books, I listen to things, I hang out with my friends, and mm. I'm just not so accessible to the world. I'm not so easy to get a hold of, I'm not so exposed. And I don't know how to get there, but I don't need to know the whole path. I just need to know at each given moment in time, what's the one thing I can do to lessen my addiction to this phone. And I'm, I'm working on it, man. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a hell of a drug because it tells me that I am important. I'm important because I'm tuned in <clears throat> to the right media, to yep. the right social media channels. I'm accessible all the time. Look how important I am. It's what it says about me as a person. And so no wonder we're filling our lives with so much information clutter, so much entertainment clutter, so much news clutter and social media clutter because, oh, look at me. Yeah. I'm right and these people are wrong and I'm going to follow the people who support and show me that I'm right and I'm going to scowl at the people who I oppose, these idiots who are wrong because look at me, I'm addicted to this drug called self-righteousness. Yeah, man, think about all the political debates that happen on social media and if you look back over the course of maybe the past year, how many of those things have you changed in response to all the emotions you felt from the things that you've read? Like, you know what I mean? Think about how many things you had an emotional response to and how many of those emotional responses have resulted in you altering your behavior in the real world in some kind of way that leads to productive change. I mean, this stuff seems so important in the now moment. It's why uh, we talked about this before why I'm starting to read history more and more because I believe it's become a lost art to pay attention to information that was out there before you were born. And we're losing our sense of time. We're losing our ability to make a distinction between the urgent and important. The urgent matters, but it's something that I feel pain and discomfort for not paying attention to right now. Whereas what's important matters, but I might be able to get away with ignoring it for a few months or even a few years before it creates pain. And the, the internet is just giving us all the urgent stuff. And there's so much important stuff that has nothing to do with today's debate or today's trend. And we're losing our ability to think critically and creatively about that. Most, most emergencies aren't. And as soon as we understand that the things that are emergencies are urgent for someone else, we don't have to heap that onto our plate. It feels mm. urgent in the moment. But I can choose not to bring that onto the plate. I just want to piggyback on what TK said about what is really like urgent versus what's important to bring it back to the smart versus dumb phones. Something that I observed with my original dumb phone usage, we had to regularly delete text messages because there wasn't room to keep all of these things. We had to regularly delete pictures when we could take pictures on there. It was forcing you to decide what's really important and really take a step away from that. Also, when text messaging was first coming out, we were all using T9. There was a lot of friction with text messaging. You didn't send people these little novels in your pocket. You would get to a point where you'd start texting them and go, oh, this is too many buttons. I'm just going to call them. 
I think that's that's something we really have missed moving forward in technology is that kind of that kind of boundary that's already set in place for what is important and where you spend your time with usage of technology. I would love to go back to a dumb phone, to be perfectly honest. Mm. I completely understand what um, the the author is saying here with this interview with Dulcie, because I've seen that too. And I that's something that's really scary once you pay attention to it. Mm. Yeah, we aren't anti-technology. I want to be clear about that. Because We've been using technology for you know many many centuries, right? We, fire is a technology, and no one says fire is bad. But if it burns down your house, you're going to have a bad experience with fire. If it cooks your food, you're going to have a pleasant experience with fire. So how am I using this technology? And it might be that the technology now is using you. Yeah, the advertisers the marketers, the influencers, they need to aggregate your eyeballs in order for them to be relevant. And there's a lot of noise out there technology is creating. And I think the what this article highlights, and I'm going to move on here in a second, we'll put a link to the article. So if you want to read the whole thing, you can find it in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast, or you can sign up for email list and you'll be right there in your, your inbox. But what this article is highlighting is our dependence on technology might get in the way of living fully. Because when we start being so dependent on the smartphone, on the glowing screen, when it becomes the 79th organ, mm. we're tethered to it. it used to, we used to be afraid that, oh, you know, we're, we're going to be upgraded into some sort of bio-human, right? That... that some technological humans, this hybrid robot human. And we're already there because we have that thing in our pocket. It's literally tracking us. It's figuratively tracking us Mm. as well. And it's really hard to let go because of the immense convenience, right? But we can, we don't have to opt out completely. We can turn that smartphone into a dumber version of that phone. We can remove the apps that distract us because by itself, it's just a glass brick. Yes. So we can remove the things that are distracted. No one's distracted by their GPS app. I'm not like constantly going to the GPS like, oh, I need to see where I'm at now. But with Instagram, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I'll just go in there for a minute, right? Or we can replace it with things that we find to be more meaningful. The Kindle app is one thing. When I got Instagram off of my phone, I replaced that same slot with the Kindle app. So every time I was muscle memory yeah. programmed, I'd click it. And now, ah, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, well, I'm already here. I guess I'll read a page. Yes. Yeah. And that, for me, was uh, more fulfilling than the constant scroll. Ryan, have you ever, hmm. without knowing, just have you ever dived into Instagram and then all of a sudden you look up and it's 30 minutes later and you feel this sort of existential clutter, this dread of, why did I do whatever I just did? I barely remember any of it. Maybe I laughed once. Maybe I shared something. But ultimately, it's 30 minutes later, an hour later, and I feel this sort of ick that I can't let go of right now. Mm. Yeah, man, it's what always cracks me up is I'm like scrolling through all the reels and uh, like every single time I'm like, look at these yokels. And then like, I just finally catch a glimpse of like 
Well, I'm the yokel (laughs) that is supporting and encouraging these yokels by adding my views to the algorithm. Um, And it's why yokels like me get caught at looking at other yokels. (laughs) By the way, one of the reasons why I I go to daily mass is so I can throw the CIA off with the tracking. I pull my car up to a church, leave the phone in the car and then go do my thing. And the CIA is like, oh, he's all right. He's just going to church. (laughs) 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 Then I go handle my real business. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that is. (laughs) Let's move on to Talkaboutables. Little segment where we talk about something that might be current, something that's on our minds. Malabama, we were talking this morning. I uh, got here early. You were you came in shortly after I did, or maybe an hour or so after I did, and you we were just like there was joy there, and I wanted to expand on it because I've been thinking about this recently. Maybe you could uh, you could give your perspective on what you witnessed this morning. Oh well, gosh, it's, it's joy every time. I get the same reaction from you guys when I come into work every single week is we come in and it's big hugs. Hey, how you doing? It's all very genuine. You can taste that. But then both of you guys, I catch you saying, we're doing it. We're doing it. We get to do this. We get to be here. And I looked at you this morning and said, this is the first time I've ever worked a job where someone is saying that regularly, but they mean it every single time. Mm. That's powerful. I can't believe we get to do this. It's like we found some sort of glitch in the system here. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And like, it'd be easy to sell out, to do sponsorship, all these things that would actually make our lives more frictionless. Uh, yes. Yeah. But it would create this other kind of friction, right. this yeah. internal friction right. that would make me Ooh. miserable. Yeah. I mean, it would be this sort of existential angst. There would be a weight that I'm carrying around, right? Mm. I can't believe we get to do this. And I especially feel that way because all three of us here at the table have had some near-death experiences within the last few years. Ryan's was back in 2014. TK, yours was, was that earlier this year? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, it was earlier this year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I had a couple within the last four years uh, where I ended up in the hospital. And there's that thing that Kapil Gupta says when he talks about, Everyone should have a near-death experience every six months so they could figure out what it means to be alive. And there's this YouTube channel, Ryan and I have talked about this privately, but uh, you know those guys who go around do pranks like in the hood? They're like, hey, you looking to get jumped and like yeah. it's just like they bring jumper cables to the hood but like right. oh yeah oh yeah I've you know what I'm talking about <laughs> the top-notch guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like the one guy, he's like, uh, uh you trying to get popped? Yeah. And the guy's like, what? And then and then when the guy gets ready to hit him, he pulls out a can of Mountain Dew. He's like, you trying to get pop? And, the, and then the guy laughs. He's like, man, get out of my face. Oh my but some sometimes it goes horribly wrong. Sometimes yeah. they get punched. Some they get guns pulled out on them. They I almost want, always get close to that point. Yes. Yeah. I've seen one where the guy pulled out a gun, put it on the guy's head. Opto is one of the, the guys from these top-notch... I think it's called Top Notch Idiots is the name of the channel. Hmm. And... Here's what I thought at first. I'm like, these idiots. They call themselves idiots, obviously. But I'm like, what are you doing? You're going to get killed, right? And while I don't recommend this, anyone at home, don't go around like insulting people who can kill you or just don't go around insulting anyone. However, if there's a silver lining in any of this, there's a weird thing where I think these guys are living more than most people. Not because of what they're doing there, but afterward, like, 
you see in these videos a lot, they almost die almost every video. Mm. They're getting knives pulled on. They're getting chased down blocks by people. Like, you don't know what's going to happen here. These dudes mm. almost get killed for comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And because they almost get killed, there's a thing that lends itself to like being in the moment. And so when we show up early here, and yeah, I could complain. I can't, I had to get up at 4 a.m. this morning. I get to get up at 4 a.m. to come in to hear how awesome is that? And it's just this total mind change, mind shift, mindset shift on, on my part where I don't feel like I have to do any of this. Like we could walk away from this tomorrow and everything would be fine. I know mm. that. But also like then I wouldn't get to do this anymore. And it took understanding that, hey, this is all going to be over anyway. So like we get to do this. But if you haven't gone through one of those experiences, I don't think it takes going through a near-death experience in order to appreciate where you are right now. But realizing that there is, there are millions of other people in this world who would pay a lot of money and attention and time, a lot of people who would kill to be in your position right now with all of your troubles and all of your woes. You know, it's cute that you think you even have troubles right? It's cute that I think I have troubles, that I have problems in life, right? Because when I pan out a hundred years from now, all of those troubles will have dissipated anyway. Mm. Happy birthday to Ryan Nicodemus. It was his, it's belated. It was his birthday yesterday from the time this comes out. That's all right, man. <laughs> happy just, belated, brother. Thanks, I man. You guys don't have to sing happy birthday or anything. Birthdays happy are so many. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Oh, you really Wait, cha, cha, cha. Am I really gonna sing this okay, sorry, <laughs> song Happy all by himself? himself. <laughs> no, no, it's I got a funny thing with birthdays where uh, I was raised not celebrating birthdays because Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate birthdays, and they mean very little to me. And like, I have literally forgotten before that it was my birthday where I'm like, oh, like my mom will be like, yeah. oh, happy birthday or whatever years old. And I'm like, oh, today's my birthday. You're right. So <laughs> I appreciate the birthday wishes, Milburn. You always remember as well. And it, and it does, uh, it does mean a lot to me, you know, when, when people wish me happy birthday, but it is totally not necessary. So if you want to get him a gift, you can. October 23rd was his birthday. If you want to get him a gift, it's real simple. We don't every episode say, hey, make sure you like and subscribe and rate and review or whatever. But for Ryan's birthday, if you'd like to get him a gift, the gift of a review would help us and our minimalism message reach more ears. You can head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Minimalist Podcast. We don't ask this every episode. So when we do ask it, please listen, because we're not going to ask you every single time. Uh, we simply ask you once a year when it's Ryan's birthday. Mm -hmm. How and, old am I again this year? Well, according, remember we were on stage. Someone thought you were thirty-five. Yeah, but oh, you're yeah. thirty-five. But here, year. here's the thing, though. Uh -huh. <laughs> anytime I, anytime I guess someone's age, I look at them and I'm like, subtract five years. Mm. You are a very wise man. And well, she said I was fifty. <laughs> <laughs> She said I was 126. Yeah, yeah she did. <laughs> she did. Clearly she thought TK was a vampire. I don't know. I'm, I'm like Morgan Freeman. I've always been like 88 years old. Right, right. He's like the black Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible, man. That is terrible. <laughs> oh Rate and God. review. Ryan Nicodemus. <laughs> Happy birthday. Thanks, man.
you know what? I was thinking about discomfort recently. Yeah. Like and, what I felt when you made that Morgan Freeman joke. <laughs> <laughs> We've already moved on from that talk about Morgan Freeman. <laughs> so I was thinking about discomfort recently. Oh, and Ella, my daughter, who's nine, loves to put herself in uncomfortable situations, but doesn't think she likes discomfort. Mm. And I realized mm. because of her, she taught me that discomfort isn't bad when you experience discomfort without expectations. Mm. She's always putting herself in these uncomfortable situations from which she grows. She tries to climb a tree until she can't climb anymore. And that's not comfortable, especially when she gets really far up and now she's uncomfortable. She can't figure out how to get down. And it's creating this sense of discomfort, the sense of uncertainty, because that's all discomfort really is, is extreme uncertainty, right? Mm. Because she got up on stage in front of 200 people. She did. At her yeah. Sunday symposium. Oh, yeah. she did so Absolutely good. Absolutely. She was so proud. Yeah. She was like, did you see how they clapped for me? <laughs> <laughs> she, oh, was watching, she was watching the video afterwards. She goes, was that Malabama who was clapping that loud? Uh, that's funny. <laughs> and always pick me out from uh, a crowd if there's yeah. laughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so what I explained to her, though, is that is a situation of discomfort. Yeah. It's not that you don't like discomfort. It's not that you value comfort above discomfort. It's that you actually value discomfort when you don't have an expectation that you should be comfortable. Because if she had gone into that stage, she mm -hmm. had gone onto the stage with an expectation that this will be 100% comfortable, she would have never done it. And she would have had a terrible experience. Mm. Yeah. But because she didn't have that expectation, she just had a standard. The standard was, I'll memorize my lines, I'll go out there, I'll say what I need to say, and whatever happens, happens. Yeah. She wasn't expecting applause because we had a conversation about that. Because as soon as she expected applause, it may not be the amount that she expected, the timing that she expected, mm. and it would ruin the experience. Yeah. Discomfort is a gift when you have something exciting or wonderful to anticipate beyond that sensation of discomfort. And what I see in, in, in her situation is that the climbing the tree as uncomfortable and risky as that is, there, there's a discovery there. What, what, what does that feel like to be at the height of that tree? Or can I do it? Do I have the power to make that happen? Like you're, you're pursuing something that's exciting, right? Or getting in front of a crowd of a bunch of people. It's like, you want to be able to look back on your life and say, I did that. Or you have a curiosity. How does that feel? Or you, you want the love that you get from that or whatever it may be. There's something that pushes you past that discomfort. And so many times in life, we, we approach discomfort with this like, this sense of needing to prove to the rest of the world that we are strong or we, we almost have a sense of like righteousness about discomfort. Well, you can't just go about your life trying to avoid discomfort. Pain is a part of life and you got to put up with it. And so we never want to be the person that avoids pain. We never want to be the person that whines when there's pain. But you should never put up with pain or discomfort unless there is something bigger and better than the pain and discomfort that makes it worth pushing through. Why go through hell unless there's truly something on the other side? Suffering for suffering's sake yeah. is the definition of evil. And so mm. we don't want the evil in our lives. It's not about suffering just for the sake of suffering. Yeah. You know, beating ourselves, you know, like an ascetic might in order to prove that I can deal with the pain is one thing. But like if you're just suffering to show how virtuous you are, that isn't a virtue at all. But if you're suffering, for a cause, 
because I want to grow or because it's contributing to the greater good, then it doesn't even feel like suffering. It feels like growth. Mm. That's why you don't teach children discipline. You teach them purpose because Ah. discipline is not intrinsically good. You know, it takes a lot of discipline for me to bang my head against the wall in spite of the fact that that hurts for 10 minutes straight without letting any distractions stop me. But that's a meaningless thing to do. And it's a self-defeating thing to do because there is no higher purpose that imbues it with meaning. You don't teach discipline, you teach purpose because when a person has a sense of purpose, they're willing to be diligent, they're willing to be dedicated, they're willing to be devoted, they're willing to be consistent. But so many times we we tell people, well, you ought to do this or you should do that. And we're teaching them discipline and they get the sense of like, oh, well, showing up on time or taking a shower every day or being respectful to other people. It has nothing to do with the quality of life that these things produces. It has nothing to do with the results it helps me create. It's because mom wants me to do it dad wants me to do it or it because it's the right thing to do. No wonder we rebel at the first opportunity we get the chance to abandon those rules because there's no purpose to them when you do it just out of respect for authority. Mm-hmm. And when you have a purpose, then you seek out that discomfort or at the very least, it doesn't matter to you that it's uncomfortable to do that thing that you find to be right. purpose-filled. I want to talk to you guys about walk-in closets (laughs) and why they are a terrible waste of space for me. Now, Mm, I sound uh, like Carl Sagan. Uh oh, tell me about it. (laughs) Well, that's that's his. uh, That's the infamous line in Contact where they're talking about um, all the space out there. They're like, "Do you think there's life outer space?" And he's like, "Well, if there isn't, it sure would be a waste of space." That's like the infamous line. Yeah. So. I'll be the Carl Sagan of the walk-in closet (laughs) space here. There there must be aliens in there or it's a waste. (laughs) Now, I told you the story on the private podcast previously, but when we bought our house earlier this year, we have what I would consider to be a walk-in closet. I guess technically, if you can walk into it, any closet is a walk-in closet. Yeah. If you have the right mindset, Ryan. That's right. (laughs) If you have that positive mental attitude. Right. That's what I say about bathrooms, too. (laughs) You have a walk-in bathroom? No, I'm just saying with the right attitude, any room could be a bathroom. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know if that's the right attitude. especially to moralize my statement, TK? It's especially true for your pets. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so we have a closet I can walk into. It's not technically a walk-in closet, but it's bigger than if I were building the house myself. So our bedroom has a closet that I can walk into. I can turn around, but it's not a full walk-in closet. And what I realized is that as a minimalist, I don't want to have excess space that I don't use for beauty. Here's what I mean by that. We are often worried about space as though there's some emptiness that we must fill. And you can see this all the time when the average American household square footage is approaching 3,000 square feet. Nothing wrong with owning a 3,000 square foot home if you want, if you feel like you get value from it. But as soon as we buy that home with four bedrooms and a two and a half car garage, whatever the heck that means, right? And a full basement and an attic and the second living room, which is we some people call an entertainment room, whatever we have. Whatever space we have, we feel compelled to fill it. And as soon as 
we get more space. We need to get more things to fill up the space. And well, the reason I say that a walk-in closet is a waste of space is quite often it encourages us to fill it up with more things. Now, if you walk into my closet right now, you're going to see a mostly empty closet. And because of its size, I don't own a whole bunch of things. I didn't feel, well, at first I'm like, oh, what more can I put in here, right? As opposed to appreciating the space. Because here's the thing about space. The space confers the material. We've all seen like the videos, you know, and you've been to Tokyo, Ryan, Mm -hmm. and the trains there, when they're like pushing people onto the trains, what's happening? There's no excess space. There's no extra space. Mm. And you feel what? Suffocated by the lack of space. Mm. And yet we complain that our lives are so empty or we feel a void in our lives. There's no void there. You just have some space that makes room for living a more meaningful life. And I'm not trying to fill the space because if I fill the space, now all of a sudden I'm suffocating myself with stuff, with excess experiences, with well, things that can make me frustrated or angry or joyless, they get in the way of my joy. And I find that to be, I find the closet to be a perfect synecdoche for this broader problem of space. If you walk into my bedroom now, we barely have anything. There's a bed, a couple end tables, and we have this uh, massage table that we just leave out that Bex and I will use to give each other massages occasionally. And that's it. And it's a fairly large bedroom. It's bigger than if I were to build the house myself, but there's excess space in there. And at first I felt compelled to fill it. And now every time I go in there, I say, ah, isn't this nice? There's so much extra room. There's freedom in here. There's Mm. space to move around. And if I were to get more stuff to fill the space, then I'm going to feel crammed just like that subway passenger. Mm. You're making me realize that a void is what space feels like when you think you need things in order to explore the possibilities that that space makes present. But when you look at children and the sense of play they have, they don't need a bunch of things to explore space and to make space come alive. When I think about my brother and I, when we were little kids, we had a a spacious basement and we'd go downstairs and we'd just have one cardboard box and we'd get inside that small cardboard box and pretend like it was a spaceship and we were going off to different worlds and we'd spend most of our time out of the spaceship, walking around an empty space, just exploring, right? Seeing so many things with our imagination. Yes, we were children, but it still represents something that's possible for life as adults. When we liberate ourselves from addiction to amenities and comforts and luxuries, not treating those things as if they are wrong, but treating what's within our soul as if that too is right. What can we create? You know what I mean? Yes. You're opening up the space for creation. Yeah. And for relationship. Yeah. With yourself, relationship with others. I got one more talk aboutable for you all today. This is really for the audience. TK, Ryan, and I met last week and we brought the rest of the team in to discuss this as well. We've decided to simplify our Patreon tiers. So uh, earlier last year, we introduced a new tier that was just for the audio version of the podcast. We call it the Simpleton tier. And inadvertently, we added some extra complexity to our Patreon tiers. We always wanted just three options. 
provide our supporters three options, three levels of support. And we had that. And then we added this new introductory tier to provide people with the audio only version. And we accidentally complicated things. We complected by adding one more strand to our weave. And so our VIP tier, we've decided to grandfather everyone who is a VIP. So I want to be really clear here. Don't worry. If you are a VIP supporter, you're not going to lose any of your benefits. As a VIP supporter, you get the personalized videos from me and Ryan and TK. You get the advanced copies of everything that we create for life, as long as you're a VIP supporter. So any books that we create, book chapters, films, uh, films that we don't even release, which is something we're working on right now. So as a VIP supporter, you're grandfathered in there. You don't have to worry. We're just for new patrons. We want this process to be less complex because people show up and they see four different options and they're like, oh, this is overwhelming. It's like when you go into a Walmart and there's a hundred different ketchups or whatever. You're like, yeah. I don't e- I don't even want ketchup anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. I get them all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a ketchup connoisseur. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the sauce king. I mix and match them. Oh, no. <laughs> a ketchup suicide. <laughs> um, <sighs> but what, I, what I'll tell you is that, so we've decided to get rid of the, the highest tier. It's not like, hey, we're getting rid of the low tier. We're getting rid of the highest tier. Although we're going we're gonna to do that at the end of October. No pressure for anyone else to upgrade. This is the last and only chance to become part of that tier if you want to. And I don't care if anyone else. So please don't feel pressured into upgrading to that tier or anything else, obviously. But if you do want it, you just go to theminimalists.com. I'm sorry, go to patreon.com slash theminimalists. And you can see the four different tier options. At the end of October, there will only be three. The Simpleton, the Intentionalist, which gets you the video version of the podcast and the weekly home tours. And then we have the True Fan tier. That will be our top tier. And that tier is limited to 1,000. So VIP, I think, is 200, which we're grandfathering. That will no longer be an option after this month. But don't worry, VIPs, you're all still part of this. You, people are just new people aren't going to have the opportunity to sign up for that tier because there's also a lot of administration that goes into that particular tier by sending the videos and all this other stuff. So with new people sending them books and films and all, all of these things that we're going to eliminate the complexity, not just for our new patrons, but the complexity for our team as well, simplifying things as we tend to do. So hmm. we're, not getting, we're not getting rid of the bar, but we're making last call because we're closing the door, right? <laughs> yeah. No, no new people coming to that party. That's right. And no pressure to drink anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You can stay exactly where you are. You'll, you'll be fine. If you are interested in seeing all the, the nuances, the differences between the tiers, you can find that out at patreon.com slash The Minimalists. You can change to the VIP if you'd like by the end of October 2022. And then it is grandfathered forever. You get to keep it if you're there, but no new people can sign up for that level of support. TK, do you know what time it is? It's time for... TK's Tweet, tweet of, of the, the Week. week. <laughs> oh, it's yes. growing on me. Oh, it's so growing on me. Oh, my goodness. In Alabama, you know what's so great? What? I was truly hoping that you would sing with me. I was secretly, too. I was thinking about that on the break. I was like, man, I hope we get to time this out good. I, I was like, I hope Alabama just sings the <laughs> Tweet of the Week with me. And that, I'm man. So, I'm so glad we were on the same page this morning. We were synced. Let's take a look at this tweet you got here. Alabama <laughs> printed that out for us. All right. Uh, oh, shoot. Uh, you know how to pronounce his name? Uh, yeah. I, he's my homie, too. 
<laughs> you don't know how to pronounce it. I would right? say Bordero. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's my homie, too, who's like, yeah. who wrote this tweet. That's what's messed up. I like, really know how to pronounce name. Josh's last name. But, but it's also like knowing people's phone numbers by heart. Like, just because you love them don't mean you know their phone number by heart. But at Matt Ryan's phone Udrell. number is uh, 513-932-2010. Oh, my God. Oh, don't don't you can call him directly. Do not dude, dial that number. Dude. Uh, are we showing this? The was tweet? A, this this is like a throwback to when um we were in high school. <laughs> we would be like ordering pizza, or we would like I don't know, need to call a business, or oh like hey let me see your let me see your phone book because that's how old we are. <laughs> hey, let me see your phone book, and uh, I got to look up Pizza Hut. And Josh would be like, oh, I got it memorized. Call this number, and he'd say that number, and you call, and it's like. Lebanon Police Department. How can I help you? <laughs> <laughs> and then you look suspicious by being like, oh, uh, yeah. nothing? Wrote number? <laughs> yeah, please do not bombard the Lebanon Police Department. All right, back to TK's Tweet of the Week. <laughs> All right, Matt Bodero says this, TK. All right. In dialogue form between government and them, government, hey, parents, would you send your child to our religious institution that's completely against your own beliefs and ideals for 40 hours a week for 13 years, as long as you got to see them on weekends? Them, no way. Government, what if we called it school? Them, deal. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a profound truth in this that um, we have simply accepted. And by the way, part of us has to accept this because even though we homeschool our daughter, we have to have the government's permission. I had to get the government's permission to homeschool Ella. Otherwise, I will be arrested at gunpoint, put in prison because I am, I am not following the conventions of the local municipality. Right? And what's interesting is that historically, whether you agree with this system of schooling or not, Historically, that's a relatively recent approach to education. For the overwhelming majority of human history, the primary way that children learn moral values, social intelligence, how to develop useful skills so that they could contribute to the economy, how to adult, how to handle responsibilities, how to interact with people, they learned it in the home. And it's just, this has become so normalized that now when someone says something like, hey, I'm going to homeschool my kids, we treat that as if it's some sort of historical anomaly. We treat it as if it's some sort of weird thing and that they have to justify that by being able to answer all sorts of questions that we only think about when we're talking to homeschoolers. I'm okay with all those questions, by the way, but, I, but I'd be interested in hearing everybody try to answer those questions. Mm. Yeah. I feel like this should be uh, TK's anti-government tweet of the week. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What, what, what's the opposing viewpoint to what he has to say? Oh, I don't have an opposing viewpoint. I just want some more information. So uh, the religious institution. So it's religious in the sense that there, well, usually with religion, there's some sort of dogma and you could present the case that there's dogma being preached in, in these schools. Is that is that why we use the word religious here? I'll, I'll I'll try to make a, a more modest, less controversial claim than that there's dogma. I'll simply say that there are many parents, whether you and I agree with them or not, who are unsatisfied with what schools are teaching their children. And these parents require the permission of the very institution behind these schools to opt out. 
Mm. And that's that's kind of an interesting thing. Now yeah. there are some parents that are just completely happy with the system. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not how, here how mocking them. How tough is it to get the government's permission to get Ella in the unschool? Yeah, what depends on what state you're in. California, it's actually relatively easy. Not surprising. Uh, other states, it's significantly more difficult. Montana, strangely, for example, it's really difficult. Yeah, really. Uh, yeah, but there it, it, there's different mm. levels of difficulty. In some states, mm. it's nearly impossible. Yeah, and in other states, it is. A bureaucratic, it's uh, the going to the the equivalent of doing the DMV. It's just unpleasant. <laughs> but imagine, like Ryan, if you didn't want to be for you, <laughs> I mean, me too. But uh, <laughs> if you didn't want to be on this podcast anymore, but someone said, "Well, no, you actually have to be," and if mm. you don't, we're going to take you to jail. Mm. Now you're going to feel a whole lot less free about showing up, unless they gave me an alternative. You could do this podcast or. You could go to unschooling. No, you know, um, no, I, 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 I like this train of thought. Um, I think it is a, a curious thing to consider. And to, it's schooling is always something that I think we should always be curious about. Um, I mean, I agree in the sense of if Mariah and I have kids, we might probably have the ability, the the fortunate circumstance. I won't, I won't necessarily call it a privilege. But maybe you could interchange fortune and pr- fortunate and privilege um, to. Uh, to give our kid an unschooling type of situation. And I would 100% choose that over sending it to the government's institution because I mean, my, I don't, there was very little of any public schooling that I enjoyed. It was pretty much bullying and hell for me, like pretty much my whole time. And I would like hate to put uh, a child through that. So yeah, I would totally opt out. Um, But yeah, that's no, I love, I love when we get curious about schooling because it is, I think we start to, just listen to the experts and take their word for it. And, yeah. and we just go with the status quo. I think what yeah. a, a tweet like this does, and we need to move on, but it puts it into perspective yeah. that, hey, maybe yeah. there is an alternative to the commonly accepted path that has been prescribed to us. Mm. Uh, just really quickly, really quickly. Uh, first, I already picked out next week's tweet and it has doesn't even mention the word I'm government. I'm totally messing with you, man. Uh, but, but the second thing I just want to say is I, I actually prefer to keep the dis- keep the focus off government and just put it on the application of creative thought to the concept of what it means to educate a human being. Because what's happening is that we're losing our sense of imagination and wonder in terms of what we can teach our children and how we can teach them. And anytime you outsource your thinking to another institution, whether it's a government institution or any other kind of institution, you lose something that makes you so valuable. And I just, I just, I just love thinking creatively about schooling and so on. So the last thing I'll say about this is it's funny. Imagine if your child came home and you says, what was your favorite part of school? And they said, lunch or recess or when it was over, mm. right? Like children do this, by mm. the way. A lot of them My do. My daughter not, not used everybody. to always say the end of the day, when it yeah. was over, yeah. all the time. Now we laugh at that, right? Like, aha, these kids, mm-hmm. right, right. Of no, course, I was but, I was upset by it. No, yeah. I know you do, but I'm saying I, I, I would be There's upset by it. There's humor in it, for sure. But, but, but I'm saying like, I think a lot more children besides your own would answer the question that way. And I think a lot of people would have a different reaction than you. They just either be like, ha ha ha, or they try to encourage their kids to just like a bet another part of school a little bit more. But change it up a little bit. Imagine if when your nanny left or your babysitter left, he says, what was, the, what was your favorite part being with the nanny? What was your favorite part being with the babysitter? And your child was like, when they left? Mm. Oh. Mm. You, you probably would sit down and have a conversation like, well, what did y'all do? 
Yeah. Right. What did the babysitter say to you? Right. What did y'all talk about today? Mm-hmm. Right. No parents is going to laugh that off. Right. Or just leap into trying to help you have a better time. They're going to be a little concerned. Right. What are you being taught? And uh, I think whenever our children say things like my favorite part of school is lunch, recess or dismissal, I, I, I think we should carefully consider that there is a wisdom that is being expressed from the child that isn't adequately being dealt with merely by laughing off the concern or simplifying it as a mere expression of the fact that they need to appreciate school a little bit more. Mm. Anytime I got asked that question, I just said witchcraft. (laughs) (laughs) Just to see the look on their face. (laughs) I live with my grandpa and my grandma for a little bit. My grandpa was always like, what's your favorite part of school? Witchcraft. Oh my God. (laughs) He did not get the joke. I thought it was hilarious. (laughs) Alabama, we got a couple segments that we're going to have to skip for the sake of oh, time shoot. today. Um, we're going to skip the Ambassador Trash It segment. Save that for next week. If you have an Ambassador Trash, trash It for us, you can email podcast at theminimalists.com. And then, oh, this advertisement sucks segment, we're going to have to table it because it is literally the most disappointing ad I have ever heard. Oh, what a we, cliffhanger. We just don't have the time for oh, it. Man. If you have some sucky ads, you can email those to podcast at theminimalists.com as well. Our next segment is called the Photo Friday Home Tour. This is number 12 in this Photo Friday series. And this one is titled Minimalist Halloween Decorations. So Halloween is less than a week away right now. <laughs> I'm so spooked out right now. I'm so scared. <laughs> I, already, I, I have my contacts in too. I can't even see them. Bring that over here, Danny. So if you're watching this, you can see on the screen. Is it a wooden skull? Above? No. No. (laughs) Can we get some ghost music in the background, Alabama? (laughs) All right. (laughs) So you can see on the screen above my shoulder here, there is this picture of my entryway. Uh, and we have these shelves there. And this was picture was taken at night, so we have the lights on. There's a bunch of just regular different objects. And then at the bottom, we have these two pumpkins. <laughs> and they are two white pumpkins oh. to go with our decor. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're stacked <laughs> on top of uh, Love People Use Things, which... <laughs> That's what we hand out oh. instead of candy. We hand out love people use things. You hand out books at your door. Books, you hand out copies of the book. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's like handing an it apple costs out. So going, much, but go, it's kid, worth this it. Is better. That's terrible. Every kid in the neighborhood gets one. <laughs> Advertisement sucks, but self promotion. That's, that's worse than like when you give the apple. Yes. <laughs> I mean, not worse than the apples you give out. The ones with the razor blades in them. Okay. You know, I, but you know what? That's a very good tactic to keep kids away from next Halloween. Yeah, oh that's what we're trying. That's really what it is. You just keep it away from your kids. Like, hey, love people. That, ki- that, that, <laughs> that guy gives out books. Don't go there. Don't go to that house. <laughs> no, Candy so sucks. You, you can see the uh, the photo here, and and we actually have more Halloween decorations, uh, more than this. But we wanted to find a way to both adhere to our rather simple aesthetic, and we were at the grocery store going to buy pumpkins for Ella to carve up with us, right? And little decorative gourds. And then I saw these white pumpkins and I'm like, oh, these would actually look great on the shelf so we can inject a little bit of the seasonality into the home. It doesn't have to be completely sterile, right? But it's a- <laughs> I, I just imagine you looking at the white pumpkins and how like, I can just see you getting like almost not excited, but like 
your OCD was like so pleased. <laughs> your OCD was like, this is going to fit great on those shelves. <laughs> no, I prefer not to have them at all. Like it was just me living by myself. There's no way I'm going to have this. <laughs> but I have a family. And, and so like with, I, I surprised them. So I put them, I, I put them on the shelf. And next morning, Ella was like super excited to see them. She's mm. like, we have Halloween decorations. <laughs> and, um, and Bex was like, oh, you're the best. These look great. And so like aesthetically, I think it was this middle ground that worked well for all of us. For Ella, we also have the pumpkins that she can carve out and we put on the porch. And what I recognized is that like we have these objects to try to make the space beautiful. I don't need any of them. They're all non-essentials. Every object mm. you see in this <clears throat> picture, in fact, is a non-essential. But they add some sort of value to our lives, some aesthetic beauty to our space, which is important to us. Mm. So every Friday, we send out a photo on Patreon for anyone who watches the video version of The Minimalist Podcast, where we just go through these little home tour things. And I thought this was, this was nice for this episode, since Halloween is right around the corner. And Ella, I think, is going to be a... Princess Ninja this year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh heck yes. That's so, awesome. A few weeks ago we I might be a princess ninja this year. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> We're gonna duke it out. <laughs> Who's got the best princess ninja costume? <laughs> uh you've always been a princess ninja in my book, Ryan. <laughs> you always know the right things to say to me. And so what we have in our space here on these shelves is, you know, some things that add value to our lives. They're they're decorative in one sense. So they are aesthetic, they're pieces of art. And we have collected them over a period of time. And one thing that we do to keep the space fresh is move them around from time to time. So it's not the same thing over and over. Mm. And so this shelf might have artwork from a completely different shelf in that somewhere else in the house. Or we just move a few things around. And every quarter or so, actually every quarter is when I do it. You know, it's on my calendar. <laughs> but every quarter I'll move some things around to keep the space anew. And so it's the same space, but it always feels fresh and it's never stale. It's never the same thing. And having these small little Halloween decorations that will go bad shortly after Halloween, <laughs> it's great for the season, but then I'm forced to let it go because mm. if I cling to it, it rots. And what a metaphor for the consumer purchases. Most of the things we're holding on to have been rotten. You can pickle them. <laughs> Minimalist. <laughs> Oh, oh sorry. No, no, no. no, no please, me first. Uh, they look really good, man. I, I, I'm projecting my own. My OCD is like, oh, man, that's nice. <laughs> it matches the shelves. All right, go ahead, TK. Minimalist movie idea. The Grinch Who Permitted Halloween, starring Josh. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, he comes in with his white pumpkin, gets rid of the orange one. He's like, there, children, this is more aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> <laughs> this is the climax of the movie? I'm not investing in that. <laughs> <laughs> You're always... Crapping on my dreams to be the Grinch, Ryan. <laughs> you can be a Your heart's at least twice year. as big as his. Yeah. He's like, all of this lack of aesthetics. <laughs> Makes me sick. Maybe that could be the Scrooge of Halloween instead. Yes. Alabama, let's check in with our Patreon live stream. I have a question here from Brian. He asks, when we let go of an item, relationship, or activity... How can we most effectively untether all of our expectations we tied to that thing to prevent baggage? So, Josh, how do you let go? Hmm. So, how do you let go? How do you untether? These mm. are all metaphors for the same thing, right? And so, 
untethering is a little bit different from letting go because untethering presupposes that you are tethered, right? And so that's part of the story we tell ourselves. Instead of being attached or unattached, we have to detach as though there is an action, right? I have to untether as though I am tethered to the expectation. Mm. You're not tethered yeah. to your expectation. You're clinging to it. You're actually strangling yourself with your own expectations. And so in a weird way, as you cling to those expectations, the residue of those expectations cling to you as well. So how do you let go? You simply stop clinging. You stop holding on to the expectation. Well, how do you do that? You see them for what they are. You see that it's totally possible to move forward without them. When have you experienced the most joy in your life? It was not when you were looking at some far off future and expecting to get to that end point. Mm. It's when you let go of the expectation of getting there. It's funny. We were talking earlier about practice and discipline, right? Mm. And I've realized this with Ella as she's learning to get better at reading, she has to practice her reading every day. I was sitting down yeah. with her yesterday and she was learning to read a, a paragraph and she gets really frustrated. Why? By her expectations. I explained to her that words are frustrating to all of us sometimes, right? TK, who is one of the most brilliant minds I know, just struggled to say Matt's last name a moment ago. He was struggling to read there. But at some point, you no longer have to practice reading. You just read. I said, Ella, I read every single day. I never practice reading. And what she was really struggling with wasn't the reading itself. It was the idea that she had to practice. And that's why the old school system for her was so difficult because they forced her into that practice mm. mode. And I would say that she's been in unschooling for five or six weeks now. And her reading has probably improved 400% in that period of time. And not once has anyone forced her to practice. She now seeks it out. It's self-directed. Mm. And last night, she even sought out more reading than she typically would. She went beyond the natural limitations. And what I explained to her when she starts to get frustrated is that those words don't have the power to frustrate you. Mm. And I said, Ella, you don't have the power to frustrate me. Whenever I get frustrated with you or I get frustrated with your mom or I get frustrated with someone else, it's really me who has that power to frustrate me. And it's only me. And in that moment, it was amazing because she understood that in a way that most adults don't. She understood that, oh yeah, I'm upsetting myself. Wow. And as soon as that happened, she read the whole paragraph like that mm. without a stumble. Wow without a stammer, without a pause. She read the whole paragraph and she was stuck on one word forever. But then she, I explained her frustration to her. I said, you're still going to get frustrated. But what you do with that frustration, how you react to that frustration is entirely up to you. But as soon as you see it, you don't have to cling to it. That's how you untether from it. Mm. Clinging so on good. to expectations is a really good way to miss out on joy. Mm. and. <clears throat> when she was able to let go of that, she could read that paragraph and the joy she probably felt from like just getting through that is unbelievable. I know for me, like when expectations uh, aren't met and some kind of frustration arises within me, like I do analyze it like, well, A, did that person know that I had that expectation? And B, like, why am I letting this expectation ruin my moment? And the more and more I let go of expectations, 
the more and more I find like joy enters my life. But if I expected that joy, it would be status quo. You know mm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's what I'll speak to that question. I'll say, when you acknowledge the purpose or positive good that someone or something served in your life, it makes it easier to walk away from the things that don't serve you with a spirit of gratitude and in a manner that's free of resentment. So when you can say to your ex-lover or lovers, when you can say to your ex-possession or possessions, this is the good that you brought out of me. This is the beauty that you added to my life. These are the wonderful things that you have taught me. Thank you for them. Here is how you no longer serve me or never have served me. Goodbye, good night, I wish you well. Have a funeral for those things and relationships that no longer serve you. Many times we have a hard time letting go because we don't define what it is we let, we're letting go by assigning meaning to it. Assign the meaning to it. Have a funeral for it. Peace out. Big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for keeping this podcast 100% advertisement free because advertisements do indeed suck. All right, y'all, before we get to our added value segment this week, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist coming up uh, next weekend. It's open for two days only. I teach a writing class two or three times a year. It's called How to Write Better. And registration enrollment opens for 48 hours or the first 100 students, whatever comes first. I've been teaching this for almost a decade now, TK. I've learned so much from teaching writing. In fact, it improved my own writing. I've had high school students. I've had English as a second language students. I've had medical doctors take this class. And what we've learned is a rising tide lifts all boats. I give you the resources you need to improve your writing. If you want to write that first book, if you want to start a blog, if you're looking at writing better business emails so you can better communicate with your coworkers or clients, howtowritebetter.org. How to Write Better is the name of the class. It's four weeks. You can take it at your own pace, though. You can take it up to 16 weeks if you want. It's designed to be uh, four weeks long, and it's a bunch of different videos. It's 60 different written pages of materials. I think 22 different videos that are dripped out to you over the course of four weeks. And what my guarantee to you is that if you take this course, you will indeed learn how to write better, how to radically improve your writing. Just give me four weeks of your time and I will show you how to write better. Or you can take my class, how to write gooder.org. <laughs> you got time for a question about your course? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Um, they say the best way to learn something is by teaching it. I'm curious, what's one thing you have learned as a writer that has improved you as a result of teaching it? You know, I have a bunch of writing tips that I wrote after starting the class. So there's this free book you can download over at howtowritebetter.org. It's called 15 Ways to Write Better. Yeah. And a few of them this really stand out to me. One is to, with punctuation being pace. And so what I've learned is the way that we write, it has to do, you know, we often write how we speak. Mm. But if we change the punctuation just a little bit, and this is one of the things I teach in the class, how to improve your punctuation, you can actually improve the reader experience. Because ultimately, writing well has to do with communicating with other people and expressing whatever you want to express in the most succinct and also uh, the most compelling way that gets the reader it gives them that sense of narrative urgency that moves them yeah. forward to the next sentence, to the next page, to the next book, whatever it might be. And I've learned a whole lot about my own writing. You're right. In fact, especially the first three years of teaching the course, I would say my writing probably improved a thousand percent just because 
I was learning these little things. I was breaking down my own recipe. And as soon as you break down the recipe, you learn these little nuances. Here, here's one more thing that really, as I started teaching this to the students, I learned that what makes your writing compelling is that you are simultaneously more compelling and less compelling than you think. Ooh. And I'll leave that as a cliffhanger. But if you want to check out the course, it opens this week in October 28th and 29th, howtowritebetter.org. You can also head on over there and download the free ebook, 15 Ways to Write Better. For our added value segment this week, we have a friend, Ryan, Michael Gunger. Oh, yeah. He and his wife have a band called Gunger. Yeah. We, we love them. They're awesome. Her voice is unbelievable. Like, oh, she's got, I love her voice. <laughs> we I like his voice too, but. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, she's got, she's got that, um, ethereal thing going on. Mm -hmm. I can't even explain it other than that. Well, if you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, then the song that is playing in the background, that is a song from Gunger's new album. The album is called A Love Song to Life. And this song is called A Million Eyes. And as an I, like I, me, myself, I. But the song, the whole album is like worship music for people who aren't used to worship music it's mm. not religious in the traditional sense although they come out of that tradition and i found i put the album on as almost this meditative experience and the whole album is beautiful it just came out you can check it out by gunger we'll put a link to it in the show notes if you're watching the youtube public version of the podcast then there'll be a link somewhere above my left shoulder and you can uh, check out the audio version on youtube of a Million Eyes by Gunger. That's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan O'More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace.